That has been Menomina by the Preferred Enemies Chorus. Yeah. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Undergrowth Network, Warhammer 40k podcast. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And this is episode 177, and we are still on the Codex Review train. And this time we're doing a doing a special for Dennis, because it is Harlequin time. Yay. That's right. The killer clowns from <laughs> outer space are what our main topic is going to be for today. But, as always, there's news and new releases and your listener mail, and we're going to spend a lot of time on news and new releases because, oh, holy crap, there's been a lot of stuff announced, or at least some major things announced uh, since uh, since we last recorded. Plus, there's been one or two things that have happened that uh, need addressing as well. Uh, also, before we get too far in, uh, normally I would say this for listener mail, but I want to get this early so while everyone's just started listening to the show. We do have a pair of uh, mission corrections uh, from uh, our Imperial Knight review, and these were brought to our attention by John Baker and uh, Hiram Warby. First off, we uh, overlooked something on the the errata for the Night Lance, the rule that makes a super heavy detachment worth either 0 CP or 6 CP based off of whether they have three Titanics or not. Well, it was late. We had been messing with our old board, uh, which we'll be talking about that in a second too. But we, oh, we, we kind of mixed the two. So the original book said you either got... No, you you got no command points if you didn't have three quester or dominus the and then in the errata we saw oh yeah it's six cp now and you have and they're just titanics so the forge world stuff would be included well there was a line in the middle we missed and that was that a super heavy detachment is worth three cp if you have at least one titanic imperial knight so if you have a big knight of some sort and then a pair of armagers that detachment is still worth three three command points uh if you have three titanics it's worth five if you have zero titanics and you just have armagers it's worth no points so that was uh that was actually a, a major overlook on our part so i wanted to bring that up asap the other was an interesting interpretation and i think this is actually correct uh, on one of the free blade burdens and i I can't believe we, we – well, I can. Like I said, it was late, and we were, again, looking at this. There's plenty of factions like Yandin or I believe it's Hawkshroud where they double the number of wounds remaining 
for the purposes of determining what characteristics they use in the damage table. So they're like, they don't drop to half like their middle band until they're down to one quarter hit, one quarter, you know, wounds remaining. Well, there's a burden called Weary Machine Spirit says, while this burden applies, you have the number of wounds the free blade has remaining for the purposes of determining what the, which you, which characteristic band to use. And I, looking at this took this to mean oh so when i have three wounds i treat it as six which effectively is right so once you have six wounds you'd be at half but it was brought to our attention well no this just has the number of wounds you have remaining period a fully healthy 24 wound knight will automatically be in its middle band because it'll be treated as though it has 12 yeah so when that kicks in you're crippled from the get-go and then six more, now six more wounds will drop you, well, actually no, 12 more wounds. So you, you degrade that, you degrade at kind of the same rate, you just start lower down, because you're having the number of wounds remaining. So once you're at 12, then you're at six. So it it just, that one just kind of shifts you down a band as far as where you are. So that, no, I think that is the proper way to, to read that. So, so yeah, once that kicks in, you're already at, in your middle band, no matter, even if you haven't taken any damage. So, uh, again, thanks to those two listeners for catching that for us. And, uh, we will strive to not make, uh, any mistakes. But if you do catch us making a mistake, please write in, whether it's on Facebook, Twitter, or, uh, email and let us know because, uh, we will totally own up to our mistakes. Ah, uh, so uh, with that with that correction done, um, kill team anyone? Yeah, kill team. Kill team. So you know, GW a couple of weeks ago announced that uh, kill team was coming, and we'd known that this was coming in some form or other since what Gamma, I believe. I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, so it was going to be a return of skirmish level rules, and it was. Going to be interesting to see how did this differ from old Kill Team? How did this def- differ from Shadow War Armageddon? How did this differ from Necromunda? And and I mean, I'll even toss out Shadespire out there. There's yeah, there's I mean, lots of little skirmish games that 40k or not 40 that Games Workshop has made that are out there right now. Right, and so it's like, where is this going to fall? Especially because they had announced that there was going to be ongoing expansions and a support for organized play. And like, so where is this going to fall? Is this going to be a completely new rule set that is only barely related to to eighth edition, or is it going to be eighth edition with something else tacked on? You're like no idea really what it was. Well, they've been starting to release details about it on the Warhammer community site, but we've also been lucky enough to get our hands on an advanced copy and actually play around with it a little bit. Uh, I will say the box is very generous, and I believe the list price for the box is 130 bucks. And with that, you get the rule book, the you get two kill team, two ten man kill teams, one of uh, Skitari, which can be Vanguard or uh, Rangers or both. You can mix it together. Yeah, uh, and then a kill team of Gene Steeler Cult Neophytes. Uh, so you get 20 models there. Uh, like I said, you get the rule book. You get a 22 by 30 inch folding game board, which is basically taken from their Sector Imperialis Realm of Battle board. If you look at it, it's the, it's the same stuff there. So they basically took one of the really nicely painted boards, took a couple of photos of it, and it's a double sided board. So there are two slightly different looks on it. And then they included some of their new Sector Imperialis terrain. So it sounds like the old Cities of Death terrain is finally being retired. 
and is being released or is being replaced with a new set that uh, has similar aesthetics, but are slight. You know, it's a slightly different aesthetic, but very close to the old Cities of Death stuff, and is also sized comparably to the Sector Mechanica strain that they've been putting out since Shadow War Armageddon. Which I got thinking about that today, just looking at them size wise. It got me thinking. The bases of the models back when the Sector Imperialis came out were smaller mm-hmm. than the bases we use now. So it almost feels like it, the terrain itself has kind of gotten the jump and scale. Right. Actually, they, uh, there's a video that one of the terrain designers did, uh, for GW. It's, it's a short, like, two to three minute video, but basically that was one of the points they brought up is that models have upscaled slightly since then. You know, Marines are on 32 mils. There's more things on 40 mil bases. And so they wanted to be able, be able to hold whole squads on floors rather than having them spread out amongst floors just because there's not enough room for them. And they also wanted, like, there's an archway that's included in just the kit that's in this box that is big enough for, like, a Redemptor Dread to walk through. So they wanted the the scale of the terrain to be correct. So I got a chance to put the terrain together I got all the terrain in there assembled within a couple of hours. It, you know, came off the sprue nicely. And it's the one in the box there is in a nice kind of tan putty color. And actually, everything in there is on colored pa- colored plastic. So the uh, Mechanica stuff is on red plastic. The Gene Stealer Cults are on a different gray, like a lighter gray plastic yeah. than the, the standard gray, uh, you know, GW sprues. And then this, like I said, it was on a tan, but, but it, you know, it came off the sprue really nicely, cleaned up really easily. They, they've done a really good job at minima- minimizing their, uh, sprue contact points. So it was really easy to clean up. And it's got this really neat, like, panel and column design. So basically, like, each large wall section is a panel and the front half of a column. And then you clip off and glue on the back half of the column. And then other panels that attach to it, the one edge, like their panel edge is cut away in the same shape as like the edge of the column. So it kind of slots into the column, but it doesn't look quite as obvious as here is a big slot to insert piece of terrain into. So you can have corners that look natural, but then the wall sections actually connect seamlessly. And it's not just like trying to stick two flat pieces together like it was on the... Uh, oh, but that was so much fun, right? You no. Know, I know. Especially because <laughs> if, as one would slightly get off, it would throw off the whole... Like, it could throw off a whole wall or floor section. But, yeah, the, the floor segments are probably about five inches tall. Like, they're taller than the old Cities of Death. So they're, they're close to six... They're, like, between five and six inches tall, I think. I thought they were about eight... No, no, they're not. Oh, no, no, I think they have about six, because that's what yeah. the... I yeah. think they're six. Yeah. And um, and then the top, like I mentioned, the, the, tops, the, the tops of the columns have this kind of nice octagonal design that your floor pan, like your floor panels have, will have part of the octagon or a whole octagon to slot into. So they all kind of lock together, and there's like columns with buttresses to go under floor panels to help support them. The floor panels themselves underneath have kind of a grid work that they have like little light bits, like, you know, like ceiling lights that plug in that you can actually use to connect two of them. You glue this all with plastic cement and it is super sturdy. It, the plastic is weighty, but not like gratuitously heavy, but it feels very solid once you've got it put together. Yeah. I, I knew like when we were unboxing it, and just holding the sprues, I could tell that that was 
some good hefty plastic that they used for that terrain. Yeah, and uh, now they are they have announced like four levels of kits for this that one is just like base ruins kind of just broken walls that you can kind of break up the table with and then there's three scales of like i think those are 25 and then three buildings going from 50 to 75 to 100 i think the 50 is very similar to what you get in the mechanic or in the the 50 is very similar to what you get in the kill team box the 75 has like statues flanking an entrance and then the seven or the the hundred dollar one has like exterior like vaults with statues like along all, all these columns i mean and it looks really really slick it's still got the whole gothic space design elements there are pipe fittings that connect to like the therm the thermic plasma conduit pipes that they've done for mechanica stuff so you can still kind of mix in your sector mechanica stuff if you want to get a you know that consistent feel but I'm I'm really impressed with the new terrain line, and it looks like it actually blocks line of sight a lot better than the old terrain as well. Yeah, and, and the sprues for those kill teams are not like easy build push fits. No, those it, are those are the neophyte hybrid like kit sprues. Yeah, with like all the options, mm-hmm. and as are the skatari. Yep, it's it's everything that you would normally get in that box. You know, if you bought that box off the shelf. Just in colored plastic. Yep. And apparently they're going to be doing colored plastic sprues for... They are releasing kill team... Like, the. I think there are two kill teams. Because this all goes... This will all be going up for pre-order the day you hear this. Because I'm going to try to get this out on the 21st. Uh, so this will all... So you'll be able to order this. And I believe they've also got two other kill teams that are being released as separate boxes. One for orcs. And one for Space Wolves. And one for Space Wolves, which the Space Wolves one is a unit of five Primaris Reavers. The Orc one is a unit of five Burnaboys, I believe. Yeah. And those include, like, rules for them, which most of the rules for them are in the core book, but this will include some extra tactics, which are basically kill team stratagems, and then a piece of Mechanicus terrain thrown in, and all that's for 60 bucks. And if you aren't interested in any of those, there's also a $40 core book you can buy separately. I am a little curious on because uh, as it is, Burna Boys, um, and I don't remember the the units that they list for orcs in Kill Team. I think they have, uh, I think Ludas are in there as well. Okay, because that's the other thing that that kit makes. Right, but that's also kind of an old, a slightly older kit. Yeah, so that seems kind of weird. But yeah, Burna Boys and Ludas are both. Okay. Both in the so okay so that's one thing so kill team that uh, let's get into the rules a bit because we we did get to play a game now it does say that you know the goal was to have a game played in about forty minutes I think it took us about two hours but we were still also f- kind of stumbling our way through it and yeah because there's just enough differences from eighth edition like if you look at the unit profiles they look they're pretty much eighth edition profiles I mean the stat lines are nearly identical yeah. But uh, the it's the the phases of the game are very are, are similar but different. So you've got initiative. So every round of the game, you're determining who's got initiative that round. So it's a little bit more Age of Sigmar style. Yeah. But there's no you know, and so yeah, you could definitely have somebody like in our game. I think you had initiative every single. I, I actually w- did. That was the only time I rolled good. <laughs> was was, was the initiative phase? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So you determine which player has initiative, and this does natively support up to four players. 
and actually you could you could do more i think after that it get a bit, get a bit unwieldy yeah. but it does have actually missions with deployment set up for four players but uh so first you've got movement phase in the movement phase whoever has the initiative moves all their models then going from increasing to initiative downwards so you know in order of decreasing initiative then Second player moves all their models. Third player moves all their models. Uh, each model is its own unit for all intents and purposes. And there's so there's no coherency or anything like that. However, uh, a couple of differences are, uh, yes, you can, okay, so yes, you can advance, you can fall back. Those happen the same way. Uh, you can choose not to move a model, and this includes pivoting. So if you pivot a model, it counts as having moved. Now, the rules are a little bit fuzzy on if line of sight is only from the front of a model, but with the focus on pivoting, I would think so. So, like, they even say for line of sight, like, get behind the model and look. So that would imply that wherever the model is, is, its head is facing is where the, you know, where you should be looking, you know, treating it as coming from. But, uh, so you can ready a model, and that means it'll shoot first in the shooting phase, and we'll get to that. But then you also do your charges in the movement phase, and I thought that is that is a double-edged sword. I think. I mean, to me, it, I like it there because it makes sense. Because this is where you're doing your movement. A charge is a form of movement, and and, and you pointed out, Rob, that it does kind of slow th- or not slow things, but it makes assault armies a bit slower in the fact that instead of moving and then charging, which you'd get kind of like a double move, you just have the charge, and that's it. But there is, well, at least, well, you said one benefit if you fail a charge, at least. Yeah, so um, in this one, yeah, you don't move and then charge. So basically, your movement's either going to be, like, on average, your 6-inch movement and then or a 2d6-inch charge. But if you fail the charge in Kill Team, you are still allowed to move the full distance that you would have charged. You just can't end up within an inch of an enemy model if it was insufficient. And then your Overwatch happens in the in response to a charge, or if you don't want to Overwatch, and Overwatch works exactly the same way as it does in Eighth Edition. If you don't want to Overwatch, you can choose to retreat. Then you just move away up to three inches, so you get further away. But the trade-off is you can't react again, so you can't Overwatch again, you can't re- retreat again. It's a one-time chance to I'm going to try to pull myself out of charge distance. And you do that. You do that react before the charge move. So you better hope that gets you outside of twelve, because otherwise you still risk being charged. Um, if you fall back, you can't react either. But that's the thing. It's like you can fall back in your movement phase, but you also give up the ability to advance, charge, react, or be readied or shoot unless you have the fly keyword. And the fly keyword, there aren't nearly as many units that have it in uh, Kill Team. And then you've got the psychic phase, which again functions very similar to eighth edition, except for the fact that it doesn't matter how many psychers you have on your team, every round you can activate one psyker. And then the casting process is pretty much the same. And they even have a variant of smite called Cybolt, which functions pretty much the same way. <laughs> Perils work the same way, denying works the same way. So if you've got two groups that have psychers you know, one can try to deny the other's ability, which also means if you're running like a Grey Knight skill team, one of your Grey Knights can cast rather than everybody in the squad casting. Right. But then that makes sense because if it's a squad of Grey Knights, they act as one Psyker in the larger 40k, so it kind of makes sense that only one of them gets to cast 
in this version. Yeah. So now we get to the shooting phase, and that one is based on alternating actions, alternating activations. So starting with the player who has initiative, if they readied any models, they pick one of their readied models, that model can shoot first. Then the next player who has a readied model by initiative order can pick a model to shoot with, and so on, until you've gone through all the readied models, and then you get to everybody who didn't ready, everybody who had to move, and then they can, again, alternating between players in initiative order, each choosing one in shooting. So it's not just I do all my shooting, then you do all your shooting. It's a little bit more back and forth, a little bit more strategic as far as like picking targets. Do I pick somebody who hasn't shot yet and hope to take them out of the fight? And its shooting phase thus kind of falls back to the movement because if you don't move and you're ready, you get to go first. Kind of like if you charged in combat. Right. Or combat. If you go first and ready your stuff in plans to go, okay, I'm going to shoot that guy, and then your opponent then moves his models and then moves his guy that you were going to shoot out of your shooting range. And that, that then because you so you have to be like kind of aware of that as well. Yeah. So you, you going first has advantages and disadvantages. Yes. Uh, and the, another interesting change, uh, a couple of changes to. Shooting is, first of all, how cover works. Cover is actually based on the model being obscured. It They assume that terrain doesn't have a base. They don't really care about whether you're on a piece of terrain or not, just whether or not part of the model can be... If part of the model is hidden by terrain, it's obscured, that's minus one to be hit. Yeah. And then there's the other addition of long range. And basically this says if you are outside half... Like so, like zero inches to half of a weapon's ra- like given range is short range. Beyond that, you're in long range up to the weapon's max range. If a, if the target is at long range, they're minus one to be. It's it's minus one to hit them as well. So like if you've got a space marine with a bolter and they're firing at somebody that's at eighteen inches, they're minus one to hit that person. Right. And if that person's behind cover, also, then they're minus two to hit that person. Now, you might think, well, what if my ballistic skill is five up, and now I've got a minus two penalty? Well, you can still hit them because sixes always hit in kill team. And one natural ones always miss, sixes always hit. So you can never get into a situation where you legally cannot hit a target unless you just can't see them at all. And sometimes you will roll those, you know, you will roll sixes and get those lucky hits in. Yeah, I was... Trying to roll a lot of sixes. <laughs> yes. Well, also, also, I was playing Tau and I'm using stealth suits, and stealth suits have a built-in minus one on top of being obscured and being at long range. Yeah. And I will say that I really like this long range idea because it actually gives people who want to get close and into assault a fighting chance because they're, you're harder to hit at long range. Although the flip side is my six-inch range pistol is at long range from four, five, and six inches away. Right. <laughs> Which means, you know, it's basically, you. it's like a Derringer. You have to get up really close to have a good chance to hit somebody. <laughs> and then this also impacts a, a little bit on the, uh, the rapid-fire guns, because rapid-fire guns still basically work the same way they do in 8th edition. So at half range or short range, right, they're going to be still double shots. Right. So, like, once you do get close, oh, d- it, it's going to start hurting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, assault weapons are the same way. If uh, if you advance, you can fire, but it's minus one to hit. Um, heavy weapons are the same. If you move, it's minus one to hit. And that, remember, moving includes pivoting. 
So if you turn to fire a heavy weapon, you are firing it at minus one because you are less accurate. And then there's one, there's a couple of other penalties to shooting. We'll get to those when we get to injuries and uh, and morale. So you know, at wo- attacking, so you roll you roll ballistic skill to hit. You roll the same wounding chart that you would roll in 40k. So if you're the same toughness, it's four to hit. If you're greater than their toughness, it's three to hit. If you're double or more, it's or two wounded. If you're double or more, it's two to wound, and then backwards also. So you, if your strength is half or less than their toughness, it's sixes to wound. But then once you wound them, you think, well, most of the models in this are going to have like one, maybe two wounds, but the vast majority are going to have one wound. Well, that seems like it's going to be a really short, painful game. Well. In, they added uh, something kind of from Necromunda. They added the injury roll. So if you get reduced to zero wounds, so there are a couple of, like I said, there are some units that have more than one, but if you get reduced to zero wounds, uh, any further attacks that would do more wounds to you immediately get resolved. They just go away. And then to so make an injury roll, which is a D6, on a three or less, you just take a flesh wound. You just basically either mark it on the unit's data sheet somewhere or put a token next to them keep track how many flesh wounds they have if it's a four or more the model is out of action and then you remove it from the board you add one to that roll for every flesh wound that's already on the model uh, and if it's a attack from psychic powers or shooting then if you are obscured and and within an inch of a piece of terrain between you so if you're like hugging a wall that's a minus one to take a lethal wound you're more likely to just take a flesh wound in that case also, uh, fun fact, this one didn't come into our game because I think all of our weapons were doing one damage per hit for the most part. If a model with three wounds remaining fails at saving throw characteristic against a wound with a damage characteristic of three, for example, it will be reduced to zero, zero wounds, and the player controlling the attacking model will roll three dice for the injury roll, taking the highest. So the more damage a single shot does, the more likely it is to be a fatal wound. So that's a, that's a, a neat mechanic. And yes, there are mortal wounds that just automatically do wounds. They just do damage. So, you know, that's that's the same. Invulnerable saves work the same way. Then you get to the fight phase. Chargers go first. Like Dennis said, charging is like being readied in the shooting phase. And otherwise, it works exactly the same way as uh, Assault does now. With the slight addition of flesh wounds on the attacking model, make you give you minus one to hit. And then finally, there's the morale phase. Uh, in morale phase, first off, you check to see, is your team broken? And that is if either everybody in your team has flesh wounds or is shaken or is out of action, then the team is broken. And once they're broken, they pretty much stay broken. Uh, otherwise, if half the models in the kill team have flesh wounds, are shaken, or are out of action, it might be ro- broken. You roll 2d6 compared to the highest leadership left on the table. And then if, as long as you pass, you're fine. If you go over your leadership, now the team is broken. And again, it stays broken for the rest of the game. Uh, broken mem- models in a broken team have to make nerve tests, which are very similar to morale tests in 40K, every single turn. Otherwise, they only, you only have to make them if you've taken a flesh wound. Uh, if there are any models are shaken, they are unshaken now. So once you're sh- shaken, you're shaken for a turn, and then you get it see if you are shaken again afterwards because then you take your nerve test basically every model is has a flesh wound or is in a broken team rolls a d6 they add one for every friend other friendly model that is shaken or out of action 
and then subtract one for every non-shaken model, friendly non-shaken model within two inches. So that's kind of their version of coherency is if teams are huddled up together, they're more like, they're less likely to break. And so you, you add those modifiers together, add it to a D6. If it's over your leadership, you are shaken and you can't do anything for the turn, for the next turn. Otherwise you're fine. And so basically you're handling morale on a, individual level but rather than people running away they just hunker down and don't do anything and one thing i I noted is a lot of the more elite teams like harlequins or some of the space marines will only have like six people probably and with your high leaderships on those it's really hard for them to actually like you don't need to have as many close by because they were designed to work more independently unlike the ones that have like 10 models or so that they've got lower leaderships they need the people around them to kind of buff up those their tests there right right and then uh the other part about kill team is if you remember old kill team from before they added in all those extra rules when it was basically just take a unit from 40k pick some models in it that are that are special and make them specialists and give them some universal special rule now you have specialization. You can actually take specialists, one of which will always be your leader. You always pick a leader for the kill team. And then you pick up to three other units to be specialists. And what kind of specialists they can be is based off of what data sheet you're taking them from. And then all of them get a. Basically, they have like a skill tree where at level one, they get this particular trait. So, so for example, your leader. As long as the leader is on the battlefield, not shaken, you get an extra command point every round, uh, which we'll get into command points in a second. Or you've got uh, medic was a really nice one. Medics never count as being shaken for other units' nerve tests. Uh, heavy heavy specialists are considered relentless. They don't suffer the penal- any penalties from moving and shooting. So you know it's things like that. Uh, the specialist specializations are leader, combat. So for close combat. Comms, which is for supporting each other. Demolitions, which is for doing more stuff with grenades and doing more injury. Uh, heavy for you know people using heavy weapons. Medic helps keep other people alive or at least not breaking. Scouts are for moving faster. Snipers are for shooting accurately. Veterans are just better at what they do. They provide. Uh, they're more likely to stick around. They're, be- they're better at making, uh, like, nerve tests. And zealots are get nastier when they charge people. These have trees that go up to level 3. That only applies if you're doing a campaign and you track the experience that individual models gain. And as they level up, they actually work their way through the uh, skill tree. And so you can actually build... They've got this built into the game of a campaign system where a kill team grows and evolves and people die and get replaced and and level up and get more skillful. So that's really... I really like that as a mechanic. And then there's... Uh, I mentioned tactics, which are, again, are basically like stratagems. Uh, you, uh, They all have a command, command point cost, uh, and a lot of them are very similar. Insane bravery, tactical reroll... Uh, there are others for moving first, shooting first, assaulting first, or ignoring flesh wounds. So you, you know, so they don't apply at least for uh, shooting or fighting. Basically, saying like, I'm going to spend a command point. This guy ignores all his flesh wounds and acts normally. But then all kill teams generate one command point at the beginning of the round, plus an additional one if their leader is on the board and unshaken. And then 
for every 10 points of difference between your kill team's cost and your opponent's kill team, uh, you gain an additional command point. So if you play your team cheap, you'll have more command points to use, but at the risk of being outgunned. And then each of those specialists has a has three tactics based on what level they are that they can use. So for example, the uh, first leader, spe- the first level leader specialist is use this tactic to when you pick a leader from your kill team to fight in the fight phase. Choose another friendly model within three inches of them that's eligible to fight. You can fight with each of these models before the next player's turn. So you know, just it's just neat abilities. Plus, all the factions in here have their have uh, three or four. I think they all have four of their own uh, tactics that are faction specific. Uh, when you build a kill team. Everybody in the kill team has to share at least one faction keyword, which could be chaos or could be Imperium. But if you make them all like Astra Militarum, then you get the Astra Militarum kill team stratagems and rules. Uh, the factions that are included in the book are Space Marines, Death Watch, Grey Knights, Guard, at Mechanicus, Chaos Space Marines, Death Guard, Thousand Suns. Eldar, or Asriani as they're listed, uh, Drukhari, Harlequins, Necrons, Orcs, Tau, Tyranids, and Gene Stealer Cults. Now, all of these will have, like, usually between th- some of the, well, Harlequins have one choice, and that we'll be talking more about that in the second half of the show, but uh, most have two to four, maybe a couple more. Sometimes some have like five or six units that they can choose from. And when you build your kill team, you're not buying a whole unit. You're buying them model by model, and they don't all have to be from the same squad. So, for example, let's uh, take Space Marines. You could be building a unit of, I want to have a scout with a sniper rifle. I'm going to have a couple of TAC Marines... I'm going to have a Reaver, and I'm going to take an Intercessor Sergeant to be my leader. So you can you can mix and match all of these, and then based on which one you take, like so, the Intercessor Sergeant has access to the leader special specialization. Um, if you take the Scout, he has access to Sniper, but he also has access to Comms, Demolition, Scout, uh, Leader. If you took the Sergeant. Uh, the gut, there's a gunner options for a lot of these, and they're the ones that can take heavier weapons. So you could take a scout gunner with a heavy bolter or missile launcher if you wanted. And then one additional stat, stat on their stat lines is max. So for example, you can have, let's say you say, take all intercessors. I'm going to go Primaris. I'm going to have all intercessors. Well, you can have one intercessor sergeant and you can have two intercessor gunners. Or if you take Reavers, you can have one Reaver Sergeant. So they, they've they built in caps. Of, so you can't like just like, I'm going to have all Sergeants because they have better stat lines. No, you are limited on how many you can take. Also, you can't say, I'm going to take all Heavy Weapons guys. No, you'll, you, you're usually capped at like two or three, depending on what kind of squad it is. Some squads do allow you to have crossover between units. So like Death Watch, uh, they've got one data sheet for the Death Watch Veteran. But they also have uh, the option to take at the f- take Fortis kill teams, which allows them to take uh, Reavers or Intercessors and gain the Death Watch keyword instead of Adeptus Astartes. So the 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 army building is really flexible. Uh, they have two kill teams built using the stuff in the box. I will say, I think home. I think you know, custom made kill teams will outperform them generally. 
Yeah. Because I, I felt like my like I built a Tau one that was like five Pathfinders, three drones, and two stealth suits. And between the stealth suits having three up armor, two wounds each, toughness for the you know a, a constant minus one to be hit, and having the fly keyword, and having decent guns. I mean, it was just a lot of benefits. So if I'd been playing like an all Pathfinder team, I think we would have been much more evenly evenly matched yeah probably so i mean there this is a a a good set i mean this is a really good it feels like a really good uh skirmish set i'm i'm looking forward to trying this out more and playing it more and i know i was cautious about it because i thought here's another game are they oversaturating the market because i know like i said shade spires out there necromunda's out there shadow war armageddon was Kind of out there. The Shadow War Armageddon just kind of went blip and gone. Yeah, But from watching the game, and these games, I know it took two hours to get that one game in, but it was a lot of looking at the rules, going through things, making sure you had things right. I I really think this one would probably get done in about an hour. Uh, Probably 45 minutes of our quick game hour, maybe a little over an hour for a long game. Yeah. Once you've got everything down, you've got the rhythm of it right, and you're not checking the rules constantly, yeah. And and also, it, the game is set at five turns. So w- once you've got your five turns done... Or at least the mission we were playing. Oh, uh, so the missions have different... Yeah. Gotcha. And they do have... They have narrative missions. They have missions specifically for match play. So it's a lot like, you know, 8th edition 40K in that regard. But, uh, yeah, some of them... Like, there's a narrative one called... Disp- uh, disrupt supply lines, for example. Uh, at the end of round four, you roll, the attacker rolls a d6. Battle continues on a three up. So that some games may only go four turns. Uh, the one we played was set at five. Um, some so basically f- five turn somewhere between four to six turns on average. Five is yeah. But the games aren't going to go much longer than that. And as models get pulled off the table, like anything, it's gonna it moves faster. So it, it is good for like that quick hit of 40k but not and feeling kind of like 40k but not exactly like 40k and it has a much lower cost of entry yeah i mean the cost of entry like i said these the pre-packaged kill teams are 60 bucks if you already have a bunch of models the rule book is 40 bucks and you know we list all the factions in there sisters aren't in there yet but i imagine they're going to hold off on them until they get their plastic line out next year but most most factions are covered to some extent or other, and uh, yeah, it's it the game itself has a very low cost of entry. They are releasing separate kill zones, so like the there's rules for the sector imperialis kill zone in the kill team book. There's a sector mechanicus kill zone that's being released at launch. Uh, I think that's like eighty bucks. It comes with a different twenty two by thirty folding board. And some Mechanicus terrain to go on it, and then like a book of like a small bookload of rules that are specific to the terrain. So they're going to roll out some additional kill zones as time goes on. I think the uh, the Rogue Trader kill team that was teased uh, a month or so back with like the Rogue Trader models versus like mutants, and I think it was going to involve like Inquisitors versus mutants or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that has been confirmed to be an expansion for Kill Team rather than its own standalone game. So at that point, people will be familiar with the rules for Kill Team, and then this will come out and just kind of change up like the board layout and add some new unit types. But I think I think it's going to be a I think it's going to be a good game. I could easily see it um, 
being a competitor, maybe not a replacement because the the feel's a bit different, but I could see it in that same game spot as Combat Patrol is for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also having more direct support from GW, I think, is also good. And so I, I could... And I, Nova Open has already announced that uh, they are going to have Kill Team events. Oh, nice. So, uh, I mean, that's in like a month and a half or so, so... Yeah, that's th- for a lot of people. It's going to be like their first taste of Kill Team will be at that event. So, I know, but I think that's really cool. And they are they are hitting the ground running with this. They are hit. They are releasing a ton of stuff for it at launch. And I, as I kind of mentioned before, I think this is a great starter way to get someone first introduced to 40k because small groups you don't have to worry about like having a ton of things on the table, and you can play right away. And the games are relatively quick yeah i mean this is literally you've got you one of you owns the rule book you take a like a friend who's into 40k it's like go into a gw store or your or your uh favorite you know your friendly local game store and like pick the box picks the pick the box of models off the the wall that look the coolest pick the infantry box that looks awesome okay now we're gonna play those pretty much as long as it's not terminators i don't think there's any terminators allowed in the the game but otherwise like everything else is pretty much usable so yeah just pick something off the shelf build that and we'll make a kill team out of it and have fun so i'm i'm excited for it i I think it's the best skirmish rule set that they've done so far and i mean we've really only scratched the surface of some of the stuff they have built into the missions we've you you know just gone really quickly over like the specializations and stuff like that but uh no, it's it's a good it's a good set. I'm really impressed. I'm looking forward to seeing more people do things with Kill Team. I'm looking forward to seeing more of the terrain. I'm looking forward to all the various map playmat makers coming out with a bunch of uh, 22 by 30 inch rollout mats because I know if people are going to be doing tournaments, they're going to need access to a lot of those. And I don't believe those are being sold separately by GW outside of like the Kill Zone kits. So. Uh, I would not be surprised if within a few weeks you have Frontline and Game Mat and the other various mat makers having having mats ready to, and, and they should just be able to take like some of their existing designs and take a like take the most interesting two foot by three foot segments and basically releasing those as mats. I, I'm I'm stoked for it. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, let's see as far as other games uh there has been a little bit of uh adeptus titanicus released because there was a forge world open day i think yesterday this past yeah, weekend yesterday. yeah and uh so people have gotten some a look at some of the models and some of the rules there's not a lot of it about it out yet but that is apparently coming within the next month or so as well and the models for that look really really slick although apparently somebody absconded with one of the tiny plastic imperial knights <laughs> yeah, somebody did something bad and stole a model. Yeah. Speaking of people doing things bad, that's another bit of news. And I think that's a conversation. Okay, yeah. so this is a conversation yeah. that needs having. And it is. it has come to this. Welcome to the new world of 40K competitive where we have to deal with chess clocks. And now we're talking player ban lists. Because of people doing things that they shouldn't do. Um, so, you know, in February and L- due to LVO, you know, chess clocks were suddenly on on the tongues and word pro- you know, and 
and blogs of everybody uh, talking competitive 40k. Uh, and this week, thanks to the American Team Championship, we're now talking about permanent player ban lists. Um, so, now granted, none of us were at the ATC, so I'm not going to report any names. Uh, but apparently, uh, one team was caught both, from what I have been able to determine, uh, between a combination of misrepresenting things that were on their list and, uh, being caught saying, you know, correcting it and then doing it again the next round over a series of rounds. I think uh, by the end of the fourth round, the organizers, I believe, had th- uh, basically said they were going to be applying a uh, penalty on uh, tournament points. And then a number of the, the teams, the other teams attending, threatened to, and again, this is all based off of reports from the event. Again, we were not there. Uh, but Basically, a number of the other teams threatened to uh, withdraw and re- and request refunds if that the team was not disqualified from the event. And apparently, around the fifth round, the disqualification finally went through, and that team was no longer welcome at the ATC event, for, at least for this year. This has caused a a, a new debate to pop up. Because apparently the players involved are people who have been caught for problems before, so this was not like some no-name team that uh, you know came out of nowhere and like nobody knew them and they were playing sketchy. You know, these were people who had uh, um, basically developed a reputation for themselves, and uh, needless to say, nobody's really pleased with the, the how this turned out. So it, it, you know, it throws the, it's something that like when you have a team that is, and this is not just like a two player team. This is what a five, five player teams at ATC five, I think. Yeah. 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 When you have a five player team, you know, a number of players are not playing, you know, in a sportsmanlike fashion, you know, for one thing, nobody enjoys those games and it also throws the legitimacy of any of their wins, that event into question, which then throws off the legitimacy of the entire event because who knows how different things would turn out if that team had not been there participating, you know, because mm-hmm. at that point they're basically spoilers for the event. So this has led to a discussion of what do we do as a community about this? Because we don't have, you know, it's, there's the, you know, people have been banned, for example, from magic tournaments. Uh, you know the the DCI has actually issued blanket bans like you are. N- this person is, has been caught cheating numerous times and is not welcome at any DCI sanctioned events for playing Magic the Gathering. Well, that works because Wizards of the Coast is actually maintaining that as a central authority. They can basically, you know, when somebody registers for a DCI event, their number gets plugged into the system, and then DCI can basically turn around and say, "No, that player is not allowed." So. You don't get to; they don't get to play at this event. Uh, other companies have taken a very active role. You know, Privateer Press runs everything for War Machine. Fantasy Flight runs everything for X Wing and Armada, and uh, Destiny and Legion. Games Workshop doesn't have that solid hand on the tiller of the of the tournament scene, and they very intentionally made that a choice that they didn't want to be involved in that. And they're when they kind of came back with a vengeance with 8th edition they even said we're going to ha- keep that handed off 
to the people who have stepped up in our absence and are running eighth edition or, or that are running 40k events as you know in our place but the problem with that is there's still no real central authority. I mean, there's I, the ITC, but the ITC is really kind of there to just track points on an arbitrary scale that they made up. So, I mean, they've yeah. – no. Outside of that, they also – they have provided a framework for here's a set of missions that we would like people to use and here's a set of guidelines. In the past, it was like here's the – FAQs that we like the FAQs and errata that we're using for events. If you want to use them, here's the missions we have. If you want to use them, uh, here's the guidelines for using chess clocks. If you want to use them, but you'll notice that I keep adding a phrase to the end of those. And that's if you want to use them. Yep. You can play in an ITC event, earn ITC points that go for your ranking and not touch ITC rules at all. We know we did it. We've done it several yeah. years running. Renegade Open has done it several years running. Uh, there's plenty of events that don't use ITC-related stuff at all or use parts of it and not other parts. So there's no obligation. Based, you know, The ITC is not it's, – you know, it's, it's like the pirate rules and Pirates of the Caribbean. It's more a set of guidelines, really. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, that's – so the ITC – doesn't have you know they only have the authority that we give them and so and, and and up to this point they really haven't put themselves up to be that authority they are you know they are a point tracking system they are a tournament tracking system but th- you know they're they are not the central authority for all things 40k competitive yeah they're they're facilitators they're not running the events exactly you know with a few particular exceptions of like sure. barry open and uh, you know lvo and such but yeah, there. So, like for right now, if the ITC put out a ban list, the only events at this moment that you would know that that ban list was being followed would be Barrier Open and Las Vegas on you know Las Vegas mm-hmm. Open. There's no one's under any other obligation to use that, and up until this point, I think everyone's been very, or the the vocally people have been very reluctant to get into player banning as much as they may have problems with this person or that person or uh you know and going all the way down from like a local store level up to a large gt level and so then the question is well what do we do about it because i mean the penalties for like what are the penalties for cheating at a given event it's usually like first time judge and and or to is going to have a talk with you second chance is usually that's it you know it's kind of a yellow card red card situation at most events Mm -hmm. yeah um but what happens beyond that okay so you got to play a few games you're out your registration fee you're not up for any prizes but now you still already screwed up the rankings because by your very presence and the fact that you participate in games you know to either has to say well okay so we're going to redo their scores to count as losses but that may have changed how things were paired. So now no one knows if they would have had a valid, you know, val- was this a valid pairing? Should I have played that person instead who I might have had a better chance of beating? Or, you know, if I had been paired properly, I wouldn't have been against the army that was a perfect counter for mine. So the only way to deal with this is to kind of nip it in the bud and keep those players from your events. But who maintains that list? And how do you keep that list from getting turned into a list that is just well, people don't like this person, so we're going to put them on the ban list. Because that's a real concern, because the one thing to keep in mind is a lot of tournament organizers are also competitive players. Right. Yeah. 
and I'm not saying that I necessarily think that, you know, like the people I know that run events, I don't think would do that, but it's always going to be a question on other people's minds. It's like you, you had a bad game against so and so back at this GT like six months ago. How do I know you're not putting them on the ban on, you're reporting them banned because you're a dick or they were a dick? Sure. Yeah. And, but there's also another flip side of that that we always talk, especially at, like for pickup games and things like that, that one of the, the biggest ways to deal with that guy is to basically ostracize that person. That if that guy comes into the store, that guy doesn't get a game. Like people know just you don't play that guy. Right. But when you go to a tournament, you don't have that part of the social contract anymore because you're not the one determining who you play. Everybody who goes to the tournament, they paid their money, they all get put into a pool, they get paired that way. The tournament organizers have taken on the role of choosing who you get to play. And so I think those of us who are tournament organizers, it falls upon us to kind of reestablish that part of the social contract. And so if we want people to have good, you know, they, we want people's experiences to be generally positive because you're never going to hit a hundred percent positivity. Somebody's going to get salty about something. That's just the nature of things. But, you know, if you want to have an event that is generally positive and you want to have an event that where people are not questioning whether the results of the tournament are skewed because somebody had an illegal list or somebody cheated, somebody wasn't playing their dice right, somebody was took a legal list, but then they weren't playing what was on their list. Somebody was slow playing and basically skewing the game so they scored all their points early and never let their opponent do anything. You know, that's on us as tournament organizers and one of the things we can do is basically know who do, who do we need to watch. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us don't have the resources necessarily to have judges at all the potential problem tables, especially depending on who's coming to a given event. So, I mean, short of having some – I mean, there needs to be some sort of centralized repository of – known bad actors Mm -hmm. but i don't know who maintains that list and i think anything that went into that list would have to be then independently verified so that there's no wiggle room on you know like well so and so put me on here because uh, they had a bad day yeah i mean i think that you definitely would have to have it would have to be a pattern of behavior like i don't know that someone going in and and having an experience and getting kicked out of the tournament does not necessarily mean that that player should be banned from all future events or should be banned for even, you know, six months from events. But if that person should be, you know, as we mentioned earlier, kind of the, the uh, soccer system of uh, yellow card, red card, maybe, you know, maybe you get kicked out of the event and you have a warning, your name goes on this list, you're maybe scrutinized a little bit more, it's kind of a probationary period. And if something happens again, that's when you get banned. Right. That's when you're like, nope, you're not going to be able to play in events for six months. And I think... Ultimately, the only way to make it to maintain it is there's going to have to be a level of trust amongst the players and the TOs. I it's, it's got to be a group of TOs that are making these decisions and then agree to use the ban list. If, for example, Frontline may not necessarily or, or uh, ITC may be facilitating all of the uh, you know the the events and stuff or f- putting the tools out there, but if LVO, Adepticon, Nova Open, and the ATC all agreed that they were going to come together and put put a ban list of people that aren't allowed at their events, a lot of other events would fall in line with that. 
because there is a lot of power in those events to be able to go, this is something that's not acceptable behavior and we're going to do what we can to, to, to try to fix it. And maybe that maybe the solution is to have, you know, every area kind of maintains their own list as well. Cause you know, we, we have a, as peek behind the curtains, we have a Facebook group of all of like the Midwest tournament organizers where we talk about our events and give feedback and stuff like that. Maybe that's how you do it. If there's nobody that's going to step up and do a national quote unquote list, maybe each group, each pot, you know, each area has to do one where like all the SoCal organizers agree that this is how we're going to handle band players. or this is how, you know, the Midwest tournament organizers are going to handle these players. And that's not ideal, but at least it's a start. Yeah, it, it would be a start. I think the other thing is if you wanted to have a, a nationalist, let's say if ITC decided, and ITC, uh, like Reese has already announced they're, they're working on a set of floor rules to cover yeah. the expectations for sportsmanship, like the expectations of this is how, like, you should really be rolling your dice. Like, here, here's things you do and don't do with your dice, do and don't do with the speed of your play, stuff like that. So everyone, you know, is on this, the same footing. But I think if the ITC wanted to put something out there along with these other groups, and actually, in this situation, since all of these events, again, they f- they pu- they fall into their they pool their data into the aggregator that is Best Coast Pairings and the ITC. I mean, people are playing these events partially for prizes, also partially for determining who's the best at the end of the season at LVO. Yeah. If ITC wanted to wanted to have a ban list with some teeth, now I've seen some people suggest, well, the players who are on this list can play, but they just don't get ITC points. I don't think that's alone cuts it because that's still going to screw up the validity of the events that they go to. Mm-hmm. Because it's like if you go to an event and that player is banned from earning ITC points, so they can't raise their record. Well, if they weren't in the top running for ITC anyway, that might not have an effect on them, but they could still be like a second pod kind of like a table nine through 16 person who can still screw up the rankings for everybody else and still cause a bad event. And so I, and, or, or still be gunning for the main prize. What do you do if the person who's on the ITC band list takes first at your tournament? Oh, okay. They don't get any points, but they take home the cash prize or they take and screw everybody else up. Right. So, I think at that point, you almost have to uh, enforce it on a tournament level and basically saying, if you are a tournament that you want your event to be worth ITC points, you have to use our band list. You cannot allow these players at your tournament while they are, you know, within their six month, 12 month lifetime ban, whatever, you know, however you want to have it. If you allow these players at your event, your event is immediately disqualified from providing ITC points. I think you would have to, maybe that's not the exact model, but you'd have to do something like that. This has to have teeth or it means nothing. Yeah. Especially with the way that there are people that travel for all these events. I mean, like you, you mentioned the regional list. Well, what if somebody who's on the SoCal ban list travels to Adepticon? Yep. Yeah. I mean, the Adepticon guys are going to have to keep track of every band list in the world and try to figure out who, who they want on their band list and who they don't. Right. No, I, I, I agree. There's not, I mean, there needs to be a central group that, that maintains it. That is the ideal scenario, but I don't, I don't know who that would be because I don't know that, I don't know that the ITC is the right people for that. Not anything against them. I just, the way they facilitate events, I don't think that's the right place. And there's no other, yeah, there's no other entity that exists right now that's 
really in a position unless GW wants to start getting involved in this stuff again. And I don't think I don't think they do. Yeah, I agree. I don't think they do either. Or if they do, they're going to get involved in like the kill team level, you know, as they do with like Shadespire and stuff like that. I don't think they have any interest in getting into the GT running GT game. Right. I mean, it's that's a it's a whole different beast. And whereas with Shadespire and like Kill Team, they can kind of start on the ground floor mm-hmm. and, and deter- they can build those structures from the ground up. They can't do that with the GT circuit and the GT circuit. It's, it's a little too wild west. You know, th- that's I mean, that's just kind of how it's developed. And I'll be honest, we're just as guilty of making it wild west as everyone else by kind of yeah. like being part of our own little system that we share with like Renegade Open and such. You know, that's. That's you know we're we are part of the problem as well. So I'm not going to absolve us of any of that. And and let's face it, a lot of events don't necessarily watch cheating as much as they probably could. I mean, as example with our event, we had uh, 74 players this year. Is that what it was? Yeah, 74 players. People sent in lists. Everything was pre-checked. All the lists were reviewed. I you know I went through and I spent the week leading up to the event reviewing every list, putting it into battle scribe, checking points, checking all the stuff, making sure everything was, was legit. I didn't have time to go through and actually validate that that's the army that someone brought. Someone right. could have submitted a list that said, yeah, I'm going to play Grey Knights and then decided last minute, no, I'm going to bring, bring Templar. Uh, it it would be, it's hard for us to tell. And then even as such, the, what was alleged to have happened in the ATC where someone is using combi weapons they don't have or taking extra shots or something like that. That's that unfortunately is not something under the current setting. We can have TOs actively uh, referee that has to be partially on the players to be able to notify TOs. And the other part of this, and, and I, I'm, we're probably part of uh, guilty on this front as well. The, there has to be a, we have to remove the stigma of players calling judges over. Because I know that some people don't want to call judges because, well, if I call a judge on this, then they think I'm being picky and I'm the problem and I'm going to get a bad sportsman score. Yeah, there needs to be we need to be able to remove that stigma from it as well so that people feel that they that they can come forward and be like, hey, I, I think this is I think something's happening. Please let me know. And then the other part of it is it's hard to accuse somebody of that when you're right there next to them. You know, there's got to be. I don't know, maybe a, a way to submit issues differently. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that either. But Well, I'll, I'll say two things on that, Kev, is one, calling a judge over also slows down the game. And if you're already having problems getting games done, that's just going to add to it. And the second part of that is sometimes a player might not know that the other person's cheating because there's so many rules in every faction. I mean, unless you know the faction they're playing, you might not know. They might say, yeah, my gun fires four shots when it's only supposed to fire three. You don't know because you don't play against that faction. Yeah. I mean, we had an issue with that at Midwest of somebody discovering that they're, you know, suddenly being like, wait a minute, my opponent was playing an Ivara and I don't think the save he said he had, he should have had. And Mm -hmm. then we, you know, we looked at like, yeah, you've been playing your Ivara wrong this whole time. And and there's no way to know if that was that honest mistake you read the data sheet wrong or were you cheating? We th- there's no way to determine at that point. It's yeah. too late. It's already happened. So um, yeah, we do need to get rid of that stigma of calling a judge judge over. And we everyone has that 
you get that image in your mind of the guy yelling judge every five minutes, you know, because they're, you know, they're having a shitty game. But you should also have be free to call, hey, I'm going to have a judge come over and double check this. You should all you always have the right to do that. But to Dennis's point, yeah, when we are having trouble getting two and a half hour long games to finish to the point where people are talking, we need chess clocks. There's no time to call a judge. Right. Especially when it's going to take, you know, it may take a minute to get the judge over there, a few minutes to explain the situation, and, and, and everybody gets their side of it in. And, you know, you may burn five, six, seven minutes trying to get this thing adjudicated. Turns out maybe it wasn't cheating, maybe, or the judge didn't see it, and there's no way to prove it. And all the judge can do is give a, a warning. Don't, you know, I don't want to hear about it again. And right. now you've lost you've lost time of the game, and that may be the difference between five turns and four turns, or four turns yeah. and three turns. No, and that's exactly it. Some players are gonna, you know, some players I'm sure let things slide because it's not worth it to call a judge over. It's it's worth it to try to power through and finish the game and deal with it afterwards. And that's not ideal either. Like I said, that it's going to require a culture change from players, from TOs, and everybody involved, so that cheating gets called out as it happens and that people don't feel comfortable trying to cheat. Yeah. And that's the thing is if the community takes the steps to do it and, and tries to do it, I mean, I'm not going to say, and does it well, at least tries to do it well, this issue will eventually resolve itself because yeah. eventually the cheaters will either decide that it's not worth it anymore or they'll stop coming because they'll know that they're not welcome or that they're going to be caught, that they're going to be figured out. And then we'll also determine if those players were cheating because you know, were these players in the past? They, you know, that's the other thing is it throws the legitimacy of past wins into question yeah. too. It's like, were these people doing well because they were cheating or were they doing well on their own merits most of the time, but then at a big event or something, the temptation to fudge something or misrepresent something or slow play something was just too strong. Because mm-hmm. that's the thing. It's like, I think a number of these players who are getting kind of called out for this kind of stuff, it's not necessarily that they're bad players, but I think it's that when they get up to certain levels, they take it like in early rounds when they're in the mixed field of everyone at different skill levels, they're taking advantage of people's ignorance and then at high levels, they're trying to eke out any tiny advantage they can. So they may be good players, but they feel like they, unless they can be the best player, they'll do whatever they need to get there. And that is not good for the game. Yeah. Agreed. It's, it's going to require, there's going to be some hard conversations about what has to be done and there's going to have to be, I mean, it, like I said, as you mentioned before, we have to be careful as well so that we don't throw people under the bus for honest mistakes or, you know, let this become a vindictive cycle of certain players. Something happens and then, you know, stuff gets blown out of proportion. So we have to be careful, but this has to be addressed and it can't it can't continue to go on because competitive 40K will dry up if people decide that it's not worth it anymore. Yeah, I mean if people are looking for a good, honest, competitive event and they look at 40K and they see like, man, there are just so many issues here with slow play and cheating and list people getting their list construction wrong and stuff like that, they'll move on to other games. And there are plenty of other games that are waiting there in the wings. So it, this is something that if you if you are into competitive 40K, 
you need to be having these conversations with your player group, with your local tournament organizer, with the people that you know that go to bigger tournaments. This conversation needs to happen. It needs to happen now. And we as a community need to decide on a fix for it. And that's probably going to end up being deciding on some central authority to maintain it. That That is what it is. All right. And so from that happy topic, let's move <laughs> on to listener mail because uh, nothing nothing brings me joy like talking about cheating and repercussions <laughs> of that. So this will this will be a nice uh, palate cleanser. So as always, these letters are written by you, the listeners. And if you want to write a letter to us or have a list reviewed or just have a question for us, uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the segment. And our first one is from Dewey Haynes. Who Dewey Haynes is, represents the Nova Open Charitable Foundation. And he writes... Guys, can I ask you for some assistance? Can you make an announcement about the Nova Open Charitable Foundation Summer 2018 raffles on your amazing podcast? The Nova Open Charity Foundation returns for its Summer 2018 raffle season with 22, that's right, 22 raffles, 8 armies, 2 detachments, and 12 models, including a Forge World, War, uh, Forge World Warlord Titan. So if you wanted to buy a resin toddler stacked with guns, this might be your chance to win one. All to support charities, including Doctors Without Borders, the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, and the Fisher House Foundation. Uh, some important things to factor. These are raffles, not auctions. It's everyone in the world, everyone with a ticket has a chance to win. And as we know from past raffles, sometimes the person who only buys a couple of tickets will beat out the people who buy hundreds. So anybody can win. Tickets can be purchased from anywhere in the world via the website novaopenfoundation.org. Uh, you do not have to be present at Nova Open to win. They will ship anywhere in the world that has a valid mailing address. Uh, tickets are either $2 or $5, depending on the item being raffled, and may or may not be limited depending on, you know, if they have, you know, put a cap on how many tickets can be purchased. Uh, their aim is to send 95 cents from every dollar spent on raffle tickets to the charities designated. The other five cents goes towards covering PayPal and shipping costs. So almost all the money you give is going in the form of raffle tickets is going to go to the charity that is like each raffle lists which charity it's going to. Uh, tickets are on sale now. They went on sale July 1st. Uh, the sales are going to finish at noon. Eastern Standard Time on September 2nd. Drawings will be done and announced on September 2nd at the Nova Open Tabletop War Gaming Convention Final Award Ceremony. Winners will be contacted individually in the following days and announced on the Nova Open Charitable Foundation Facebook page. So if you want to keep track of everything that's going on with the Nova Open Charitable Foundation throughout the year, you can follow them on Facebook. So the armies, the armies include... A 30k Iron Warriors army, a 30k World Eaters army, a 40k Death Watch army, a 40k Ultramarines army, uh, a Hordes Trollkin army, an Infinity Yujing force, uh, Star Wars Legion army, Star Wars X-Wing squadron, uh, a Dark Age Brute Court of Freeton detachment, a Wrath of Kings Celestial Host detachment, and then 12 models you will treasure forever, uh, a Nathaniel Garrow from 30k. The uh, aforementioned Warlord Titan, which looks beautiful. I've seen pictures of it. A Blood Angel versus Death Guard diorama. A 40k bolt pistol prop. A Hive Tyrant. A 40k Mortarian, which if I believe, if I'm correct at remembering, this is painted by Duncan Rhodes. So yes, you too can have a Duncan Rhodes Mortarian. A Trajan Valoris. An Ultramarine Primaris Captain. 
a cool mini or not red bull, a dark sword frog jester, a reaper orc berserker, and an X-wing Darth Vader uh, tie advanced X1. And then besides these two 22 amazing raffles, the Nova Open Charitable Foundation will again conduct a silent auction at Nova Open. Uh, so you can stop by and bid on models, more models, gaming accessories, and such there. Uh, they began operating in 2013, and its mission as a nonprofit is to fundraising to demonstrate the compassion and generosity of the worldwide tabletop wargamer community. To date, over $130,000 has been donated to numerous charities. That is using your wargaming powers for awesome, which is something we are always big fans of. So, yeah, if you spotted something on that list that uh, piqued your interest, go check out NovaOpenFoundation.org. Find that raffle. Buy tickets now because uh, some of these may be limited. Uh, and some of them, I think, also have a minimum number of tickets that you have to – like I think the Warlord Titan has a minimum that you – I think you have to spend at least 10 bucks. So you have to buy at least two tickets. Um, but, uh, yeah, get those in before September 2nd, uh, when the drawing will happen and remember anywhere in the world. So if you're not in Northern Virginia at the Nova open, doesn't matter. You can win it from anywhere. So, uh, give some money to a good cause. Maybe win, maybe win something awesome. All right. Next up is from Bill Brooks. Bill writes, Hey Rob, this is Bill. I listened to your show on Death Watch and I can't wait for the Knights Codex review. In the Death Watch show, you read a letter from some people looking for cheap gaming tables and I was also in need, one, need of one when my buddy, who I pressured and started into starting a 40k army, showed up and wanted to play. I recently finished building my house and I had some rigid 2-inch blue styrofoam sheets left over in my basement. They're 4 foot by 8 foot, so I just cut one down to 6 foot by 4 foot and threw it on my kitchen table, dropped a fat mat on it, and threw out the terrain we were playing. Clean up is super fast. I just put it upstairs in my spare room till we play again, and it's really cheap, like $15 a sheet. It holds the terrain really well, with e even over the hanging edge. I just thought I'd let you know that it makes... It really makes it so I can set up and tear down the table quickly. Feel free to read this on your show or just to tell people about the two-inch rigid foam, styrofoam. Either way, I love your show, and I'm always excited for new episodes. Bill from Layden. Well, thank you, Bill. And yeah, this is another variant of the buy a sheet of plywood. This is much lighter than buying a sheet of plywood. And yeah, two-inch uh, rigid insulation styrofoam, like the pink or blue stuff that you can get. Yeah, that will hold up pretty well. Um just be warned that you could have a, you know, be be warned that styrofoam can crack though. So yeah, don't yeah. don't lean on the table too much, and make sure that you make sure that you set it on like you said it on his kitchen table on like an actual table. Uh, the nice thing about what we have with like the plywood is that we have the, a couple of those on sawhorses, and they're fine. Do not do sawhorses with this because it will snap. Yeah, it'll snap right in the middle. It's not not quite as sturdy, but again, much lighter. Uh, yeah. yeah, but like even with the the doing the three pieces of MDF across my kitchen table, yeah, I still have to be careful of not leaning on like one corner of it because there's nothing supporting it there. So with styrofoam, you put your weight down on it by accident, you could just snap a corner right off. Although two inches is pretty sturdy, the two inch styrofoam, you'd really have to put some effort in. But you could break it. So, but yeah. it is a very cheap solution if you have a kitchen table and want to make it into a gaming table. So, Bill, that is a really good suggestion. Thank you for sending it in. Um, next up from Matthew Miller. Matthew writes, Rob, thanks for the great show. 
And hey, it's not just all me. There's a reason I have three co-hosts here. I, I, I can't carry this all by myself. So uh, thanks for the great show. I am behind in shows and just listen to the episode where you're talking about magnetizing your crisis suits. I have a huge problem with magnetizing all my stuff because I want all the options available, even if I won't use them ever. I put a guide together on how to magnetize your minis. It sounds like you have a handle on what you need to do, but I thought it might be a good resource for you or other listeners. Hope you can hope it can help someone out. Thanks, Matthew. And he provided a link to a uh, imager library or album, so we'll put the link for that on the uh, we'll put the link for that on the show. Yeah, he definitely goes in depth here. I mean, he gives he gives ever you know like step by step, and he's got a really good uh, system for how to avoid uh, polarization issues. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's using, he's talking specifically about like magnetizing a, a cataphracty terminator, but the same things would apply to doing a, a crisis mm-hmm. suit. So it's a good reference. I mean, he lists out all the tools and, you know, magnet sizes and such, and where he even, you know, discussing where he gets his models or gets his magnets. So yeah, we'll put a link to this in the show notes. It's a really good guide to give you an idea on, on how to properly magnetize multi-option models so just uh, basically take this kind of combine it with the uh, advice we gave uh, a couple episodes ago and uh, you should be well on your way to magnetizing christ suit or anything you have that has uh, multiple options and obvious part parts where you could do those magnetic swaps all right next up is from cj cj writes hello all long time listener first time caller i mean writer your podcast gets me through the walk to and from school. I started playing back in the middle of 5th edition. One day, I left my Space Marine Codex in the back window of my car during the summer. <laughs> Obviously, this was a mistake, because when I went to use it later that day, the glue had melted and all the pages fell out of the binding. Oh, so you also live in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up getting a binder and putting the pages with the data sheets in plastic binder sleeves. This is where my question comes in. I feel that it would be super easy to just carry around a binder that only had the rules and data sheets, but the books are a lot nicer than they used to be and stay together pretty well. Also, I don't want to ruin them. What are your options on copying the pages I need to put in my own personal binder for use? Thank you, CJ. Um, if it's for personal use, photocopy the hell out of that stuff, dude. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, especially if you have the physical book at home, you're allowed to make a copy for personal use to take around, especially if it's just like just the sheets you need. Uh, the problem would be if you st- started scanning it and redistributing PDFs for everyone to use. That's where it becomes a problem. But if it's just for personal use and you have already purchased the physical book, go go f- nuts. In fact, I know a number of people uh, back when they were doing softbound codexes that would basically get them spiral bound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think even have done that with some of the hardcovers. Like, they're like, I just want the rules. I mean, the fluff part's nice, but I, I want the rules to carry around. So, yeah, I'll take the book apart, and I, I wouldn't. I, <laughs> I, I have a, a – you know, I, I like to take very good care of my books. But uh, for some people, yeah, there's some – like, I just want to be able to remove the rules sections, take it to my local Kinko's, get it spiral bound. Like, is Kinko's even a thing anymore? I guess it would be FedEx it's office now. FedEx yeah. Office. Yeah. yeah, that tells you how old I am. I just turned 41, by the way. God, I'm so uh, old. God, you're old. I am old. Not as old as Dennis, though. Dennis is super old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you old farts. He's what? You're what, like two years older than me? Yep. Yep. So, okay. So, um, but anyway, yeah, we're old. <laughs> we still think about Kinko's as though it's a thing. So, 
but yeah, <laughs> just take it to your local like Office Depot or Office Max, whatever name they're going under these days, or yeah. a FedEx office. <laughs> you just, I should just stop. I should stop now. Are you going to assume by Blockbuster on the way home? You know? I think well, I was going to stop by Walden Books and see if they have the latest Codex. <laughs> Uh, which, by the way, okay. So yesterday I went all to the Abby. way home from dinner, <laughs> where you sat down at a pizza hut. <laughs> yeah, there is still a pizza hut here in Lee Summit where you can sit down and eat, and it's the saddest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, we sat down at a pizza hut in uh, Bartlesville the first year we went to Iron Halo. God, that was a hot walk because <laughs> it's like it was the first day we were there, and uh, we oh, walked. It was fine. No, it was it was fine. Well, it was also in July. Right. It was in July in Oklahoma. So it was already a bad decision, but it was fine. <laughs> it would it, it but it was it, the event was totally worth it, but uh yeah. So yeah, you can still sit down at a Pizza Hut. But it's it's rare and far it's, between. Yeah. You can also still rent movies at a Blockbuster in Alaska. <laughs> Uh, no, they closed the one in Alaska. It's just one in California. Now. Oh, is it just one in California now? Yeah, there's one single blockbuster left. I read an article yesterday about it. <laughs> so old. But anyway, yeah, take take them to your local insert copy shop name here and uh, get it spiral bound and or put in a bind, you know, get binder sheets for it, whatever. It's your book. Do whatever you want with it. Just, uh, yeah, don't distribute them for public use. Which then gets us to our next letter from Josh Worley, who wrote in last time talking about 3D printing a Chaos, Tit- War- a Chaos Warhound Titan because you can't buy one anymore. And Josh writes, hey, preferred enemies, I asked you guys about the 3D print Titan last time, and I'll shoot you guys over some pics when I start working on it in a couple of weeks if you're interested, which I'm totally interested. I want to see how this comes out. Yeah. But I had a small rant slash question. Forge World recently put the Chaos Renegades and Heretics line for last chance to buy, and it bummed me out. I understand that I'm probably one of the couple dozen people to buy any actual Renegades and Heretics models since at least the last price change on the Malefic Lord, but it still kind of sinks, still kind of stinks seeing all those cool models, the upgrade kits, the Ogren, the Rogue Psychers, and the Command Squads all going out to pasture. Got me thinking, if Forge World would actually squat the, ta- the Trader Guard, or if they just felt that almost everyone that would actually want to run that army would rather kit bust kit bash stuff with the GW plastic. I always take a detachment of guard vehicles and artillery alongside my Iron Warriors, so I really hope they wouldn't stop supporting Trader Guard, and maybe down the road we would see a new Vrak-style Imperial armor with new toys for Trader Guard. But with how lax they've been with those types of releases since 8th edition dropped, I don't know if I should get my hopes up and just enjoy using the index rules until something changes. How do you guys feel about the Trader Guard line being put at last put his last chance to buy do you think that the rules support for the unwashed masses of chaos would be pulled or do you think they would do something like they did with aos where legacy models that are no longer made still get rules updates yeah it did surprise me that uh trader guard was basically being retired at least as a model line Uh, yeah i mean those models were super old though from forge world like they're not because i actually have some of them that i've used uh to kit bash my cultists for my corn demon kin and they're they're not great models. Like there, there was mold lines. There was mismolds. molds. They, it, they're the newer pla- the plastics, the newer forge world models are a lot better and a lot cleaner. So I would say that there's probably some hope of there potentially being updated models. Like I would, I would say it's more likely that at some point they do like a Vrax 2.0 book and release some new models with that. Um, Maybe this gets us closer to actually having a multi-part plastic cultist kit, uh, which would go a long way towards filling out the ranks of Trader Guard. But yeah, I mean, it is disappointing to see those models go, but 
uh, it's it's not surprising to me because of how long they've been around. Yeah. Now the the rules are out there. They're in indexes. So like a number of other things, they're legal for use. Will they? And mm-hmm. we've seen that they will update points costs on those uh, Forge World Index units. You know, chapter approved. So I don't think it's necessarily that those units and their rules are dead and. You know, as you point out, a lot of people will kit bash them with GW stuff. I would like to see, if not a cultist kit, which would be really cool, um, since we still are stuck with the same push fit cultists we've had since uh, Dark Vengeance came out. Yeah. It would be nice to have even just like you could, like, just like there's the Gene Stealer cult upgrade sprue for guard. Yeah. There's no reason why you couldn't have a Chaos guard, like a Trader guard upgrade sprue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would just. Head swaps, a couple of weapon swaps, a couple of icons for throwing onto vehicles, and I mean, most other uh, chaos players have a ton of chaos icons left over from the vehicle kit, so they could probably <laughs> throw those throw that way. But yeah, there should be you know, there, there's no reason why there couldn't be a plastic line of it. Um, but yeah, you're right; those those models are old at this point. I mean, the Siege of Rax books are ancient at yeah. this point. And he does bring up a good point. GW, or, or I should say Forge World, has been really lax on Imperial Armor books. We've had a year. They have. We've had a year since since uh, 8th came out. They were supposedly working on a Tau versus Mechanicus book. We're still waiting. So Yeah, I mean, at the same time with the Forge World stuff, though, the because of what happened with you know the, the writer for the... Um, for the the forty k the thirty k stuff passing away, yeah, that, when Alan Bly passed, that yeah. put everything you know kind of on back burner for a little while. So my hope is that they'll get better about that, you know, as the as they get more time. But yeah, they they definitely haven't done a great job yet of uh, keeping those updated. Yeah. So, um, do I think that they'll ever do something for Age of Sigmar where legacy models get rule updates? I mean, they might. Uh, the thing about uh, the Age of Sigmar legacy models is, yeah, they're, they've had rules for these characters out since Age of Sigmar dropped, although a lot of them had these silly rules that they kind of right. threw in at the conversion date. So they're filtering out a lot of those now and just kind of replacing them with more general rules. But they still, like, keyword-wise, they're not compatible with anything else in the Age of Sigmar army. So, like, for example, there are Ogre characters, like Ogre Kingdom's characters that are in this latest batch of leg- of uh, legacy model rules, but there's no Ogre Kingdoms in, there's, like, Beast Claw Raiders and Ogors, but there's no, you know, there's no legal army. You'd have to make, like, a generic destruction army to use them, mm-hmm. and I don't think they even, they're not releasing any pitched battle points for them, so they're not legal for competitive play or anything, but that's fine. They don't have to be. Uh, but I don't think, you know, these characters have rules in all the, like, the appropriate indexes. I mean, it's just the same as, like, uh, the fact that Kosaro Khan on his bike doesn't have a model right now. Mm-hmm. But there's still rules for him, and they've even given us the handy-dandy flowchart of telling you what, di- like, what books to use when. I don't I don't see the rules going away. I don't see them getting squatted anytime soon. If anything, maybe this points to them redoing a line or maybe bringing them into plastic. That'd be kind of nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially it's one of those things where unlike squats, trader guard and, you know, rene- you know, chaos renegades 
are a huge, huge, huge part of the universe. They can't just they can't just like say, oh, yeah, we don't want to sell these bottles anymore. So all of the chaos renegades are dead. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no, not at all. All right. So next letter is from Tom Crisp. Tom writes, evening. I swear I heard one of you mention an app that you use to track and plan your hobby progress. It might have been a dream, but I can't find the episode or the point in which it was mentioned now. I hope you can help. Sorry for the vagueness. Well, Tom, don't worry. I've got you covered. Um, I use Kanban Flow, which can be found at kanbanflow.org. It's basically a generic project management tool that allows you to set up tasks in what are called swim lanes. So basically, and you can define what those swim lanes are. So basically think bunch of your swim lanes are vertical columns. And then you have a, you create a task and it creates a little block that you can then move through those swim lanes from one end to the other. So for example, my project management chart uh, for my minis is, Models yet to buy. So, like, if there's a project that there's an army I'm working on and I want to, I want to buy something, I'll put it in that column. Then I'll have purchased, assembled, primed, painting, and complete. And then I can basically create individual tasks for the various models that I own or break them out by squad. And then I have them color coded. They give you about like, eight to 10 colors you can choose from. So I have mine actually color coded by army. So all my chaos stuff is well, technically pink. Cause I started it with uh Slanesh. All my uh, blood angel stuff is red. All my Tau stuff is green because I paint my towel green. Um, all my, like my sister's stuff I think is kind of like light Brown. Um, I've got And so it's like, I can keep track of uh, here's where, you know, here, here's where I have everything. So, like, right now I'm working on my some of my stuff for Show Me Showdown, and I can track, like, okay, so here's the models that I, I've built. I've got these primed. These are done. These are the ones I'm still painting. And then, like I said, you just drag them from one column to the other as you finish them. And you can even break some of them down into, like, subtasks if you want to get really fine detail on it. But uh, Kanban Flow is completely free. Uh, you're, I think the free version, you're limited to, like, one board, but if you, I mean, I have found one board covers like all the mini projects I have right now. So it's perfectly fine for my purposes. So, uh, and, I, and I use one, it, it functions pretty much identically to how Rob has described Kanban flow does. And it is called lean kit and it is available online. And it also has, uh, an iOS app. I have not checked to see if it has an Android app equivalent, but like from the web, you, you create an account and between the website and the app, like they sync up. So I can look at it on my phone or I can look at it while I'm at my computer at home. And I do pretty much that same kind of swim lane where I have my stuff to purchase and my stuff to assemble and my stuff to prime and what I'm working on to paint basing and sealing. And then, then I have a done column, but I have also like broken it out into rows and all of those rows have those same swim lanes. And each of those rows is the different factions that I have. Mm -hmm. And then I use like the colors of the cards to denote like what, uh, what type the model is. So like leaders and characters are, are like a, a light brown tan color and like monstrous creatures are, are 
this big pink color and and infantry units are green and whatever. Yeah, and there's there's lots of these different can kanban style. It's it's a project management style that I think came yeah. out of Japan. Yes, and so it it's been adopted by a lot of project managers, which I think is it's where I I first heard about kanban flow from the independent characters because I believe Carl is a pro, has been a project manager at like past companies he's worked at. So you know that's the, that was the tool he's he started using and he mentioned it on the show and I've started using, you know, then I started using it and I've really found it to be useful. So, uh, and you know, Richard has found another uh, one. I, I actually kind of like that where being able to break them down by faction rather, because that's yeah. one of the things with the free version of Kanban flow is I, I might be able to do that in the paid version, but free, I totally can't. It's all kind of mixed together. So, right. Yeah. It, like the free version of lean kit. Like I think it is like Kanban where it limits you to one board, but, the fact that I can split the board up into different rows in addition to the the column mm-hmm. really helps me like separate out the the factions and do it a little more specific mm-hmm. so yeah just use use one of those tools look around see if you know maybe you find a third third variant that works for you but yeah check those tools out and we'll again we'll put links to these in the show notes so you can uh, try them out and uh, find something that helps you manage your painting projects. All right, next up is from Matt Redmond. Matt writes, Is there a flowchart to follow for 8th edition that allows players to understand what rules are applied? For example, to play, you need a rule book, chapter approved, your index or codex with FAQs, and then a mission with victory conditions followed as written. For example, in a mission, it specifically states how players determine who controls an objective and how. When is this ever overturned? When or where is it ever assumed and or written that those victory conditions are dependent on some other rule set? What supersedes what in this edition? Well, 8th edition has the idea that other than the very core rules of how to move models, shoot, do psychic powers, how to fight, how to figure out morale, everything is mission-specific. It's not... Once upon a time, there were rules on, like, this is the standard rule for objectives, this is the standard rule for uh, reserves, this is the standard rule for... Um, like night fighting, things like that. That is not really a thing anymore. It's all very mission specific. Uh, the closest you can find to consistency would be the matched play section of the rule bo- of the big rule book, which starts on page, uh, technically starts on page 212. The rules start getting into 214. But most things, uh, I mean, that covers your generic deployment maps. That's pretty, which can then also be overridden on a mission by mission basis. But most things are going to be in a you know on a mission basis. So, for example, uh, the you know Eternal War Retrieval Mission, which is the standard. There are so many objective markers on the board. You are trying to control the most of them at the end of the game. Uh, the mission itself tells you you control an objective if you have more models within three inches of the center of it than your opponent. That is mission specific. All the rules for determining. Who controls an objective is mission-specific. Tournaments tend to have, like, here's our rules that we're using for all our missions for uh, controlling objectives, but sometimes that can be overridden. So, for example, um, this past uh, weekend, like, not this weekend, but the weekend before that, we played a game with a couple of listeners. So, shout-out to Jim and Jameson Border, who gave us a really fun game. We actually played one of the ITC missions. It was Mission 4, which... 
you basically control an objective if you have the most units within nine inches of the objective rather than most models within three. And they even specifically say objective secured doesn't do anything and it doesn't matter how how many models, it's number of units. So here's a mission that completely messes with the standard, the quote-unquote standard objective tracking. So at this point in 8th edition, how to play is all in your core rules and your indexes. And possibly chapter approved, depending on what adjustments that may have made to matched play and your particular armies. How you win a particular mission will always should always be on the mission, or again, if you're at a tournament, the overriding mission packet that sets the rules for all the missions that you're playing. But yeah, there's no standardized rule other than like all the Eternal War missions in the book, or anything about controlling objectives is always written the same way that it's always the most models within three inches. But there's that's just because all the missions have that. There's not one standardized rule for it. I think the Maelstrom missions might have something. Yeah, so like for Maelstrom objectives, they even say many tactical objectives require a player to control an objective marker. A player controls an objective marker if they have more models than three inches of the center of it than their opponent does. But again, that is specific to Maelstrom missions. That is not necessarily a universal rule. It's just we're so used to that three-inch bubble of control from previous editions that we've just kind of adopted it as the standard and... It is used repeatedly in the rulebook, but it is not necessarily part of the core rules. If you have somebody who's just playing with the core rules PDF, there's nothing in there about controlling objectives. It is not a core rule of 40K. It is mission-specific. And our final letter is from James Horton. James writes, G'day, guys. Jimmy Horton here from the land down under, and can I just say that you guys make one hell of a podcast? Yes, you can. You are totally allowed to say that. I've been listening to you guys for not as long as others, but without sounding weird... Preferred Enemies popped my 40K podcast cherry, and I haven't looked back since. I feel very awkward now. <laughs> sorry. Well, at least it was awkward for everyone. I think it was awkward for everyone. <laughs> I'm sorry. You failed your not-sounding-weird test there, Jimmy, but we'll let it go. Uh, even have very happily becoming a patron. I've always... I'm always hanging out for the release of the next episode and admittedly have even gone back and listened to episodes again when I have no new ones to feed my addiction. Keep up the great work, guys. Well, we'll try to. Uh, now, on to the reason I've written you all. Rob, I know you are a lover of the Sisters of Battle. Well, I am too. And for an upcoming tournament in July down here, uh, so this may be coming in under the wire. I apologize. Uh, I, I'm going to be taking mine and was wondering if you all could take a look at my list and give some feedback. Noting that I am more of a casual player who mainly just wants to go along, throw some dice, and meet new people, but I would still like to be some competitive the list is as follows a battalion detachment with celestine and her two gemini a canonist with an eviscerator and inferno pistol a canonist with a combi flamer and the blade of admonition two units of six battle sisters with a heavy flamer and melt gun this and the superior has a power sword uh, one unit of eight battle sisters with heavy flamer storm bolter and the superior has a plasma pistol and chainsword and a magifier a minostorm priest with a chainsword and last pistol Ten Seraphim with two Hand Flamers and a Superior with two Hand Flamers. And then Sisters and Superior with Plasma Pistol and Power Sword. Uh, ten Retributors with four Heavy Bolters. Uh, two Immolators, both with Immolation Flamers, because burn everything. And a Rhino with two Storm Bolters. And then a Super Heavy Auxiliary with three Armager Warglaives, all with Thermal Lances and Re Reaper Chain Cleavers. It all comes in at 1999 points, which, depending on when he sent us this list, that may have gotten cheaper. <laughs> considerably 
Uh, the idea is for Celestine and the Seraphim to pounce up the field and get into the enemy face, enemy's face top of one and let Celestine get to work. Ah, man, after my own heart, because that's exactly how I play Celestine. <laughs> Followed up by the equally as fast 14-inch move Baby Knights. They will be my main armor killers. During the, my last event, I had one. I had one, and it was better than the Imperial Knight I had with it, so I figured three is better than one. The six strong sisters are in the emulators with the eight strong unit, Combi Flamer, Canonist, and Priest, and the Rhino. Uh, they'll hit up the middle and cause havoc where they're needed, and objective hop and the like. While the remaining canonists, retributors, and imagifier will sit in my deployment zone and pump out a potential 24 shots a turn, thanks to the four-up active faith from the imagifier. I feel it will be a pretty fun army to play, plus the side of the baby knights will put, might put some people off guard as they are not widely used or known as yet, but probably will be come July. Oh, yes, they will be. <laughs> knights, everyone knows the nastiness of those new knights now. Uh, anyway, enough ranting from me. Anyway, thanks thanks for the amazing podcast. Keep it up, Jimmy. Um, oh, and this is not our last message. You added Twitter questions. Yes, I added I added Twitter comments. Okay, again. so we'll have more questions after this one. <laughs> um, so I'm going to put together this one. Shouldn't take long to plug into uh, Battlescribe because this is actually very similar to how I would run my lists. Although I usually go flamer heavy flamer rather than melt a gun heavy flamer. Although I can definitely see the argument for both. Well, if you're concerned about armor, you know, knights and stuff like that, I can definitely understand taking Malta. Yeah. Although with the, uh, you know, with, with the three armager warglaives, you're probably in pretty good shape. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the Melta guns are good against, I guess it just depends on what you expect to be going up against. Melta guns are good against armor vehicles and like elite troops, mm-hmm. whereas flamers are much better against hordes. Yeah. Hordes and softer infantry. Now, one thing that might be different is I imagine when he first put this list together, those Armager Warglaves actually gave him three command points, and now they don't. So that is something to be aware of. Yeah, but the good thing is it's not like this army super needs command points because you only have you only have basically, what, four or five stratagems? That Well, the Knights will have more. The Knights will have a couple, but you're, you're looking at specifically just Armagers with... Uh, you know the the war glaives, so you're not you're 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 not dealing with a ton of of uh, stratagems that 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 they can use. Right. He doesn't say whether he has the heavy stubber or melt gun on them, so we'll see how many points we have available. I'm gonna since he also didn't uh, mention house on there. I'm pretty sure this is probably before the point changes. Yeah, that is also true. So he may end up having a lot more points available. Right. So, yeah, this is definitely done before the points change because uh, he still has something like 229 points left, which would be about where he would be because they were, what, about 60, 70 points cheaper each? Yeah, about. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, at that point, you could add another one (laughs) and still have points left over. Right. (laughs) Uh, now, one thing I will point out is you don't want to have the Munistorm Priest in there, uh, or at least not in that detachment, because the because they don't have the Adeptus Sororitas trait. The the priests don't. They just have the Adeptus Ministorum. He wouldn't have access to the two stratagems they have because it's not technically an Adeptus Sororitas detachment. So that's one thing he would need to be careful of. But that, I mean, it's a minor detail. The priest is worth like 35 points. He's got the points to throw in a different, a second Imagifier instead if he wanted to and have that one running around with the eight person squad. 
So that's not necessarily a bad choice either. But yeah, he's got a lot more points available. I mean, at that point, I mean, he could throw <laughs> with that many points available. I mean, pendant and engine, exorcists. I mean, th- this is not a bad start for a list, but it just got way cheaper when, yeah. when <laughs> this book came out. So I would, you know, just figure out what you want to add. Uh, I'm going to ah, – dang it. I can't remember the name of this unit, but what's the uh, – what are the tanks that have, like, the big church, the big missiles on the back? The exorcists. The exorcists? They're 135 yeah. each, so he couldn't quite fit in two. But if you added one, he'd have 94 points left. Yeah. I mean, that it'd be hard to go wrong with that because those things are really good. Well, let's see. And we've got heavy stubbers on all the armatures. I would go ahead and put, if they're his anti-armor stuff, put more melted mm-hmm. guns on them, which that cuts into points a little bit. Now he's at 1810, so he's got 190 points left to spend. I mean, if he wanted to, he could drop... Now, he couldn't drop one of the Warglaves to make it into a knight. Because that's the other thing. It's like, if he can do that, mm-hmm. then that detachment's actually worth three command points again. Well, what's the... Uh, is it the Gallant, the one that's the... Power fist thund- uh, and chainsword. Uh, yeah, let me see how much that is. Because that's three sixty something, I think. Three fifty four. Three fifty four. Three fifty four. Yeah. Three fifty four. If it doesn't take a carapace weapon, it's at nineteen eighty seven points. Which is if he puts the melt gun on it instead of the heavy stubber, that's two thousand points exactly. That might be what you want to do because that. That night will do the same thing that the Warglaves are going to do. Yes. Where you're just running it up the field, causing mayhem. It's definitely going to attract attention. <laughs> yes, it will. It fits with the play style that he's trying to go for, and it'll give him three extra command points. Yeah, so it'll, it'll make that heavy. <laughs> it'll make that super heavy attachment worth three command points. Yeah. Um, it'll give him more stratagems to use because mm-hmm. they're just more that key off of that. And then as far as, like, house choice, uh, I mean, just pretty much... I mean, there's a bunch of good ones for melee, for melee-focused. I mean, yeah, there are... I mean, I mean, I would probably go for that army. I mean, let's go Imperialis. Um, if he's sending them to go against armor... I mean, Hawkshroud is always good. Right. Because Hawkshroud will just keep them alive and more effective. I mean, Hawkshroud or Terran would both be good. So... Yeah, those those would probably be my choices. You can never go yeah. wrong. With, never can go wrong with Hawkshroud. So, so there you go. Um, with your point savings, turn one of those Warglaves into a Gallant. Throw a Meltagun onto it, and you're at two thousand points. Ta-da! <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, I mean it's very similar to the way I would build my sister's list. I usually go a little bit more Exorcist heavy, but since he's replacing basically Exorcists with Knights, I don't see a problem with that. So. So no, yeah. I, so so Jimmy, I, I don't know if this is going to be too late for your tournament, but uh, I be, but hopefully you looked at your point savings and said, hey, I can throw a knight in there because that's what we did. So, <laughs> all right, and then moving on to our last three Twitter questions. Uh, for what first one is from Dylan Nelson. Dylan writes, "How do you guys handle future proofing your figures? For instance, weapon options on large number of figures with lots of combinations, such as Death Company." I don't think there is a uh, short of magnetizing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's about, that's about yeah, it. That's about it. Or just, yeah. ex- just acknowledge that you're going to have models that will eventually be obsolete. <laughs> Although again, we're in an edition where technically nothing ever gets, com- 
if as long as something was a war gear option once, it's still an option. That's not yep. entirely true. Yeah, it's not entirely true. Because I have shining spears that have like the shuriken cannon, which they can't have anymore, and stuff like that. Well, yeah, my old metal brood lords, scything <laughs> talents, they can't take. They can't anymore. take. But you know, they replaced that model. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That or and. and it obviously with something like Death Company where they have so many options, it this doesn't exactly work, but you know, use as many models with the default equipment as possible. Yeah. Because <laughs> that well, will that will always be pretty safe. <laughs> that will be more that will be more safe than anything. Yeah. And then of course there's my answer of just buy more models. <laughs> That's kinda what I do. <laughs> yeah. One hundred percent what I do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you can't 100% future-proof because you don't know what options they're going to take away, or they're going to put options in that are better than what you had before, and you're going to end up buying new models anyway. So, yeah, yeah. it's a thing. All right, and then our last two are both about uh, chess clocks. So we're going to keep this interesting. I'm putting five minutes on the clock, <laughs> and I want to keep this debate at a minimum. So the first, I'll read the questions, and then I'm going to put five minutes on the clock. So, and So is that five minutes for each of us? Uh, well, the, <laughs> a minute twenty, a minute fifteen for each of us. I don't actually have a chess, a death clock app on here. Or chess you know, I app. actually do have one on my phone, but that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. So the questions are first from Buck Temple. I'd like to hear you guys discuss the time turns versus death clock debate. Thanks. And from Charles Fox, I would like to hear you hear how you think chess clocks will help the meta like they have in War Machine. So five minutes. Have your arguments ready to go? Five <laughs> minutes starting now. I don't think chess clocks are technically good for 40K. I mean, they do do what they, they set out to do, which is they make people play faster. The downside is it takes away from the socialization time and the joy of actually playing the game and forces people just into thinking, finish my turn, finish my turn, play quickly, let's get through the game. It does make for a more intense experience. People seem to enjoy that sometimes. I am not one of those players. I tend to consider myself more of a casual, less of a competitive player. And I fear that whatever happens in the competitive scene will eventually bleed over into the casual scene and I don't want to see uh, chess clocks turning into a thing that gets brought into the casual scene just by default uh, that said if it's a matter of time turns versus death clock I don't really have a huge opinion there although I think uh, death clocks are running out of time causing one player to lose the game is not necessarily a good look for the game I, I prefer the ITC method of when the game is over when neither player has 10 minutes remaining although I would probably cut it down to 5 minutes because 5 minutes can make a difference of a turn anyone else we have 4 minutes remaining uh, I don't like them. Done. Okay. <laughs> so I have a slightly more nuanced take. I played an event. You have three uh, minutes, 49 seconds. I, I played, I played an event uh, two weekends ago that ran chess clocks and it does make it more intense. You, you do have to make snap judgments. Uh, and it, it's a different type of play style. I don't mind it. I don't want that to be the default. Uh, and we've talked about this before. Like I love not having chess clocks because yes, it is good to make people play faster and keep the game moving. There is a lot of time that you waste socializing and talking during a game. And if your goal is to get the games done and get through as many turns as possible, they're a good tool for that. I don't like it. As we mentioned earlier, it's another tool that forces the game into this competitive mindset that isn't, I don't think is personally good for the hobby. 
Uh, Chesscocks are fine though. Like I didn't really have a problem with them, uh, but I just don't want that to be the default format for everyone. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's it's dangerous for the soul of the game. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason why GW has not said, "Hey, chess clocks, we should totally do that." Um, and so, yeah, it's it's not something that I think is an overall positive. It is a solution to the slow play. It is a solution to the slow play problem yep. that has presented itself at recent tournaments. It's definitely an answer to that. I just don't personally think it's the right answer. I would rather figure out a way to extend around by 30 minutes. I think, honestly, two and a half hours for 2,000 points is too little. I, th- I agree. I think two two and a half hours for 1,500 points is probably closer. And I think it does have to be that drastic a drop in points to make a, a reasonable difference. I think mm-hmm. only dropping 250 is still not enough. Uh, with the sheer number of rerolls and stratagems and pregame selections that have to be made in the game these days, unless you you know the less of those you can have, the better. But the only way to minimize that is to uh, just reduce the amount of stuff that's on the table by about a quarter. Uh, I think our friend Dave from the Renegade Open has actually has a formula for how many minutes a round should take. And 2,000 works out to just about three hours, actually slightly over three hours. But three hours tends to be sufficient. 1,500 comes in right around two and a half hours. Um, And that's, in my mind, that's the better solution. But uh, for people who who like that intense, I need to make snap decisions, we need to get this done, chess clocks are definitely a solution to that. They do what they set out to do. They they work as advertised. not going to deny that. Uh, and I think for the very competitive-minded out there, it if nothing else, I'd use it in practice games to get yourself playing faster. Uh, yeah. But it's not something – yeah, it's not something I want to see in all of 40K. If it does become a thing, I'm less likely to play in, in match play events, and I would uh, want to keep it way over there in the high-end match play section. Yeah. I will also say, just as a quick aside – uh, the chess clock is way better than time turns. Time turns are terrible. I do not want to go that route. You have 30 seconds, Dennis. Woohoo. Thanks, Kevin. You took up all the time. Now I'm all running out. <laughs> but anyway, I will probably say, reiterate a lot of what everyone else said is I think it does solve the problem. I don't know if it's the best answer for the problem. I would rather increase the rounds, like you said. But to Kevin's point, yes, it definitely changes your mindset and it gets you thinking in a different way to play the game. And it's definitely more competitive style game than the casual style game that I think a lot of us prefer. And if people like the beer and pretzels version and just going and meeting new people, I don't like the chess clocks for doing that. And that is Woo-hoo. that's time. We did it. Yay. I could have said more, but I, I what you ran the out of time. Clock. I know. But the chess clock helped and made us get that through that segment faster. So it is true, but we had to kind of rush through it, and uh, you yeah. ate up a lot of time slow playing. So thanks. Uh, that's true. And then <laughs> there's Richard just tossed in two sentences. <laughs> there, you, that it was quick, succinct, and to the point. I yep. appreciate that. <laughs> and so that in that that's our out of time for listener mail. So. <laughs> Uh, so if you have a letter or a question, you want our opinion, uh, you have a list you'd like us to review, we're slowly getting caught up on our backlog. I think we still have like three or four. So if it's something that's timed for an event, we may not get to it in time, but we'll do our best. 
Uh, there's actually now three ways you can contact us. The first off, er, the first way is to email us, and our email addresses are our first name at preferredenemies.com. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com. Uh, you can also find links to that on our website, which is also preferredenemies.com. Uh, second way is Facebook. We have a Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash preferredenemies. Uh, you can like us there. We post when new episodes are coming up, post stuff that we're doing at uh, local events. I'm going to be posting some pictures of my Show Me Showdown army soon, uh, stuff from Midwest Conquest pops up there. Uh, and also, you know, so if you, we just, you know, discuss what's coming out, what's going on. So like us there. You can send us messages. And then the third way is we have a Twitter feed, which Kevin is now taking over because I suck at social media. <laughs> or at least I can only maintain so many of them. And Facebook and Patreon just about take up my, my, Mind space. I'm not very Twitter minded, but Kevin is. So he's maintaining our Twitter account, which is at preferred enemy. So uh, you can send us messages there as well. Uh, we post when new episodes are coming up and Kevin is posting when we're taking questions. So you can send us questions there. We collect questions from all three of these sources. We collate them together. We put them together into our listener mail section and we read them for the next episode. Also, as I may have mentioned, we have a Patreon. Uh, that's for supporting us on the show. And I would like to thank our patrons again for our new soundboard, <laughs> which we are using here tonight. Uh, we're still getting the hang of it. So we haven't quite mastered all the functions for multi-track recording, but I can already say, I think the sound quality is better from uh, what we've had before. So, yes. uh, so we've got a beautiful new soundboard here. Thanks to our patrons. They paid for this. So, uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to help support the show, uh, there, it's, it's just basically our online tip jar. You can decide how much you want to give per month. Uh, if you're interested in doing that, we don't lock any content behind the patron. You know, all our episodes are going to be publicly available. Uh, but our pay, we are starting to roll out a few perks for our patrons, such as we have dice coming from Chessex and we are currently collecting interest from people on how many they'd like to get once we get ours in which will probably be sometime in september uh so we'll once we get those in hand we'll show them off to everybody and then we'll take orders but patrons our patreon family gets first crack at ordering them so uh if you you know there's no limit or there's no minimum on how much to give if you just want to give a buck a month that's totally cool enough people give a buck a month it adds up we also give all our new patrons a shout out on the show uh and so we have patrons dan pencross john baker james border uh here's one i'm going to try not to slaughter uh, yepi kroll mogulmos and lt are our new patron our new members of our preferred enemies patron family uh, so thank you very much to everybody who gives and helps out the show. This also helps cover our costs for doing things like going to events, such as going to Iron Halo in a couple of months or going to Renegade Open in a few months after that or going to Las Vegas Open. Uh, that This helps us do those things as well. So we really appreciate it. And with that, we're going to take a break for sponsor identification. And when we come back, we're going to dig into our main topic, which is our review of Codex Harlequins. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. 
They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the Battle Mats from Game Mat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back. So now it's time for our main topic, which is our look at Codex Harlequins. So Harlequins are kind of an odd faction in the 40K universe and even among the Eldar themselves. Uh, they are Eldar, by the way. Uh, they are uh, followers of the one remaining living Eldar god, which is Kagorak or Sigorak, depending on how you want to pronounce it, whether you decide that first C is soft or not. But he is the laughing god. It's basically, imagine Loki, and I'm not going to say but good, because Sigorik kind of plays on his own rules. I don't think he really has any sense of real morality other than if it's overall good for the Eldar, I'll probably do it, maybe, but I might play a joke on you along the way. <laughs> He's the one god that managed to evade Slanesh's hungry grasp when Slanesh was born during the, the Eldar fall. Uh, and he basically did it by diving into the webway and you know running away laughing the whole time and so his followers have you know adopted that kind of mean and facade but they also play an important role in the eldar social structure because they are the storytellers of the eldar species the uh eldar i mean they they have histories and such but it's the Harlequins that are actually the performers that retell these stories in a way that all Eldar can understand because Eldar are very like psychically aware, you know, even if they're not, you know, psychers, uh, the Harlequins work a lot of like uh, hallucinogenic drugs and hypnotic color schemes and such into their performances. So it's like you are there experiencing it. If you're an Eldar, if you're a human, you just probably have a really bad trip, man. But you know they they kind of help protect the Eldar from various threats that they might not even be aware of. They kind of help connect the Eldar and the Dark Eldar together uh, because Harlequins are are welcome amongst both. They kind of move freely back and forth, 
And they also played a, an important role in kind of connecting everyone for when uh, Iniad was reborn and, you know, the Inari faction came into being. The Harlequins played a, a role in that as well. And their big reason to be is to uh, – there's a there's the Eldar f- uh, prophecy of the Ranadandra, the, the final battle in which Slaanesh will finally be defeated, except that all the Eldar will die too. And uh, so – Sigorik and his followers have been kind of trying to figure out a way out of that. <laughs> they haven't quite made it yet, but uh, they're always constantly trying to figure out a way to make the Ranadandra play, play out so that the Eldar end up actually winning and by basically turning Slaanesh's own, force, own energy against it. How that's going to happen, they're not really sure, but the Harlequins want to see it happen. The, Eldar, the Harlequins also practice, or also protect the Black Library, which is the Eldar repository of all th- of all weird, mysterious lost knowledge, including like the history of chaos and all sorts of weird... Uh, there's weird artifacts and knowledge. Uh, Armon has raided the, uh, the Black Library, or tried to raid the Black Library more than once to find se- the secrets of the Webway, and he's been somewhat successful at getting them. So uh, the Harlequins are also not fans of chaos, not fans of the Thousand Suns, and so they and with the Har- Thousand Suns starting to move in on on using the Webway, there's a natural rivalry there that pops up. The Harlequins are also weird, even among Eldar circles, in that they don't use. I mean, they use shuriken weapons, and that's about as standard gear as they get for Eldar. Um, they don't use a lot of armor. They don't use large, you know, they don't use tanks. They don't use large, you know, battle constructs in any way. And the weapons, you know, other than, like I said, uh, shuriken pistols and, like, power swords are pretty standard. They do have fusion pistols, which are handheld melta guns, like pistol-held melta guns. But then once you get beyond that, their weaponry is very esoteric and unusual. Lots of, uh, weird monofilament weapons like the harlequin's kiss where you punch somebody and send a line line of monomolecular wire into their body that just kind of coils up and then cuts everything into soup which was always one of the favorite weapons Uh, i mean that was like the iconic harlequin weapon for the longest time it still is the iconic weapon yeah it still really is it's got this very distinct kind of like long funnel shaped spike on like that's wrist mounted but they've added a couple of new variants, the Embrace and the uh, Harlequin's Caress, which the, Harle- the, the Embrace is kind of like a uh, monofilament shotgun almost. More like a net that they'll go around and try and shred towards. Right. And then the Harlequin's Caress, which is basically, my hand can go through you now, got your heart. But you'll notice a lot of these are very close combat weapons, and that's where the Harlequins shine. They don't really have a lot in the way of long-distance support. I mean, they've got a couple of vehicles that have passable range weapons, but they're very light vehicles. They've got one character who has a, a, a shuriken cannon that they can carry around. Otherwise, these are all close-up assault characters. They are fast. They are hard to hit. They... We've called them a glass blender. Yes. Uh, you know, some armies you think about glass cannons. They're really powerful in shooting, but if you touch them with anything, they die. Well, the Harlequins are glass blenders. They're, if they get in contact with you, they will murder you in close combat. But if you hit them first, they fall down hard because they are 
standard Eldar bodies. They're tough three, and they don't have a lot of wounds. They've also got a very interesting style of army construction, and they're, the the Harlequins are broken into what they call masks, and that's masks with a Q-U-E. And that's basically the a mask would be like a theater company that travels around and, again, performs these historical play battle dances for other Eldar. Uh, there's, so there's a troop master. Uh, there may be a shadow seer, which is their psyker and kind of master of hallucinogenics. The death jester, which represents death in the performances. And then the various troops, which are the actual Harlequin performers. And then there's the solitaire, which is a very interesting role. Nobody wants to be the solitaire, but somebody has to be the solitaire. And that's because the solitaire plays a very important role in any of these performances. The solitaire performs the role of Slanesh. So the solitaire is also the one uh, Eldar that, like, one of the few Eldar that does not wear, at least among the, like, craft world style Eldar, that does not wear a spirit stone and does not have Sigoric protecting his or her soul. When a solitaire dies, Slanesh gets his soul. That's part of the deal, which is why nobody really wants to be the solitaire. But the trade-off is the solitaire is absolutely murderous. Also, the solitaire, if I remember right, never speaks. The solitaire is always silent. And then there are various masks that are represented. The Midnight Sorrow, the Veiled Path, the Dreaming Shadow, the Frozen Stars. All of these have different individual focuses on the the tales they tell and the the ways they fight the enemies of the Eldar. So these are very much your your chapters. You know, the history and all the universe. It's standard, you know, standard codex stuff. One thing you'll notice is there's lots of checkered patterns and diamond patterns. If you are getting into a Harlequin's army, I hope you like bright col- bright clashing colors. <laughs> and I hope you don't e- either Want to go simple or don't mind painting tiny, maddening details that have no uh, physical representation on the model. It's all just patterns of cloth. And this is why I did mine with white and black and in a quarter pattern as opposed to checkered. Yes. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, now that is, But that is like a, a valid option to do that they, they actually have some where rather than using the checkered patterns, they just do contrasting like like Dennis suggested quartered portions or like top and bottom or and again this is one of those it's very brightly colored there's not a lot of wrong ways to paint harlequins just come up you know make up your own mask have fun with it so that's pretty much the background on on the harlequins this is going to go pretty quickly because i mean this army has fewer options i think than custodes or knights even do yeah now definitely <laughs> yeah so you've got two hqs You've got the Troop Master, and you've got the Shadow Seer. Now, there's a couple of rules that are consistent throughout uh, the various uh, Harlequin units. Uh, one is Rising Crescendo, which is represents how fast or how fast a uh, Harlequin can move. Uh, Harlequins can advance and charge in the same turn, and in addition, they can fall back and shoot and or charge in the same turn. So they pretty much have full mobility. At all times, they can move, you know, fall back, recharge, so they can always take the initiative on fights. They can always make sure they're going first. Uh, also, they have flip belts. So not only do they have full mobility, you can't lock them down because they can move over models and terrain as if it's not there, which I believe means they also ignore the height of terrain as they're moving. 
So, uh, yeah, Harlequins are a very tough army to pin down. If they don't want to be somewhere, they won't be. If they want to be somewhere, they'll get there. Also, the entire army has, you know, their armor saves are in the sixes and sevens, which is good because they have, a, or, you know, what's good for them is they have a four up invulnerable save as well. So, unless something can ignore their invulnerable save, that armor save will never come into <laughs> Right, which, which is good and bad. I mean, they're really good about tanking like las cannons, any of their high AP shots, but get a horde of armies that just like shoot thirty shots at them. They have a lot harder time making numerous saves than they do just tanking the saves that are against the weapons that would normally kill an average person. Right. Yeah, volume of shots will do a lot of damage to this army, just especially because you don't have the resiliency to shake off that many. Wounds. You don't have anything that's like low arm, you know, it was very, you know, very strong armor. Uh, so mentioning the troop master, uh, troop master has actually a lot of weapon options and this covers pretty much all the weapon options that are in this codex. By default, he's armed with a shuriken pistol and a harlequin's blade, which are close combat weapon and you know, standard shuriken pistol. Uh, but they have the options of the fusion pistol, which is a six inch melt a gun, you know, pistol melt a gun. You know, standard melt-a-gun rule, strength 8, AP minus 4, D6 damage, roll twice if you're in half range. There's the Nero Disruptor, which used to be, like, in pe- previous editions, this was, like, the weapon. Oh, yeah, in previous editions, it wounded on a 2-up. Yeah, it was, it was, like, wounded everything on a 2-up and was, like, AP 2. So it's, like, it ignored armor and it was going to wound you. Now it's strength 4, AP minus 3, and D3 damage, unless it's against a vehicle and then it's only 1 damage. It is a 12-inch range pistol as opposed to the fusion pistol. And the strength is up. It used to be strength 3, so they've at least made it strength 4 now. Yeah. So it's wounding a lot of things on 3s and 4s, so that's that's better. Point-wise, it is one point more expensive than the fusion pistol. It's questionable about which one. I mean, the fusion pistol, you have to get up close, like really close to use it, which you are going to be likely to do anyway because you are a fast you know assault army but would you rather have the the higher strength or the extra six inches of range as for me i would always go with the higher strength here because it's a lot more useful because it works against vehicles or people or anything yeah while the neurodisruptor is really only good against people yeah i mean one damage to a vehicle is okay and you might roll one damage on a person but you might roll a four or five and do two or three damage yeah, whereas the the fusion pistol will kill just about anything, or you know, will do it'll, it'll it'll put the hurt on just about anything. Yeah. Um. Then you've got the close combat options we talked about. The besides the Harlequin's blade, there's the Harlequin's caress, the Harlequin Harlequin's embrace, and the Harlequin's kiss. And again, the Harlequin's kiss used to be like the iconic Harlequin weapon, and as Dennis said, it still is. It's plus one strength, minus one AP, D three damage. Which sounds nice until you remember that this is a strength three, tough three army. So that's now a strength four AP minus one D3 damage. It's not as good as a power sword, but it's better than a chain sword. Uh, But you're also comparing that to the Harlequin's Embrace, which is plus one strength minus three AP one damage. Which if you're going to try to kill basic infantry, that's really the way to go. And then you've got the Harlequin's Caress, which is plus two strength, minus two AP, and uh, one damage. So it's kind of the middling option between the two. And it's probably the best option right now, because 
having getting up to five strength means you're wounding on threes on a lot of the four toughness armies, which is the majority of them. I mean, the only thing it doesn't do that the crest would still be better is against if we start seeing more or that elite, the kiss does better. That the kiss does better is if we see more elite armies like custodes or things that have multiple wounds. Being able to do the D three damage does kind of set it apart. If I was going to hunt characters, I'd probably go with that one because a lot of characters are going to have invuln saves, so that minus one is not necessarily a big weakness. Right. And being able to do D three damage if you get through, especially when you've got like five attacks for that one character, that will actually make a difference. But again, with for most cases, the caress is probably like for non characters. The caress is probably the best option. Yeah, because even with only minus two as opposed to minus three AP, that still takes a three up to what a five. Yeah. So. Yep. And point wise, the the kiss and the caress are both the same at seven points. The embrace is six points. So between kiss or caress, flavor to taste. Yep. Which is a great thing because um, previously before this codex came out, the kiss was fourteen points. So this is, yeah. So. But it was obviously an inferior choice for cert for a lot of applications, so that definitely brings this to a, a more reasonable place. And then the other option is you've got the other HQ option. You've got is your Shadow Seer. Well, which toss about one more thing about the Troop Master. Oh, sorry. Is his special ability? Oh, sorry. You know how they have the bubbles of something. Right. His is the um, choreographer of war, which in the fight phase reroll failed wound rolls for friendly mask units within six inches of this character. Which is different because it's normally failed to hit rolls for a lot of those characters. Failed it wounds is it. perfect for them because they, they're going to hit on, I think they're all twos up or threes up. But with mm. the three strength or four with that, making sure your wounds stick is really important for this army. So yes. that's why he is so important for that. Yeah. So, th- yeah, there's actually... A value in having a troop master as as a character, uh, and then again, uh, you've got one psyker in the army as the shadow seer. So the shadow seer has you know only has uh, weapon options, or it's either the neuro disruptor or the shuriken pistol. In this case, I'd probably take the neuro disruptor because it's definitely better than a shuriken pistol in pretty much every way. <laughs> yeah, it's either that or take nothing to save points. True, true. But then uh, has they've got the misstab for their. Yeah, assault weapon, which is plus two strength, so that gets them to strength five and does D three damage. It's solid. Yeah, it's it's a good choice. Opponents ha- must subtract one from wound rolls from any attacks made against friendly infantry mask infantry units within six inches of any models with this ability. So minus one to wound against the shadow seer and anyone nearby, which is pretty useful. Yeah, since they're only toughness three, this is a way to kind of mitigate that low toughness. Yep. And I- the other thing that you, we didn't mention yet is his other weapon is the. Um, Hallucinant Grenade Launchers, which have a really unique ability, where if a unit is hit by this weapon, not not wounded, just hit, you'll roll, roll 2d6, and if the roll is equal to or greater than the target unit's leadership, that unit suffers d3 mortal wounds. Right. So that's where its true kind of damage will come in. Yeah, and uh, with a lot of leaderships being in the leadership 7, leadership 8 range right now there's a lot you've got a pretty good chance at getting some mortal wounds in and even though it's a grenade launcher it's an assault weapon you know it's not limited you know it doesn't have any weird grenade rules around it it is one attack but you're also hitting on twos so or threes if you moved right well well i mean advanced right which you're probably going to be advancing a lot with this army yes yeah 
And uh, jumping ahead real quick to page uh, 73, the Phantasmacy discipline, Phantasmancy discipline, which uh, only Shadow Seers have. They know two powers from this discipline. So you've got anything from Twilight Pathways, which lets you move a Harlequin unit within three inches. So you can kind of slingshot somebody forward a bit. Fog of War, which is minus one to hit rolls. So you target an enemy unit within 18 inches. They're minus one to hit against all all Harlequin infantry units until your next psychic phase. Uh, Mirror of Minds, you basically do a D6 roll against an enemy unit within 24 inches. If your roll is higher, equal to or higher than theirs, they suffer a mortal wound, and you keep doing that until the target's destroyed or until they beat you on a roll. (laughs) So very, very random utility, but with luck could get very nasty, but not something you definitely want to bank on. Uh, Veil of Tears, which is the classic Shadow Seer ability. In fact, this used to be like the thing you took Shadow Seers for. It's kind of like Fog of Dreams, except instead of affecting an enemy unit and making them minus one to hit anybody, you target one friendly Harlequin infantry unit and everyone is minus one to hit that infantry unit. Got Shards of Light, uh, which is basically kind of like their in-house smite. Select an enemy unit within 18 inches. That unit just suffers D3 mortal wounds and is minus one leadership. Which will make your grenade launcher better. Yep. And then finally, Webway Dance uh, basically gives a Harlequin unit within six inches uh, feel no pain. And the change that the Shadow Seers got is they used to have one power in Smite when there was only three, so now they get two powers in Smite, which is really nice because well, you got six powers to choose from now. Yeah, so having that, yeah, having the extra options to choose, and again, you're often going to see something either Fog of Dreams or Veil of Tears because you you need that to avoid getting hit. The, I think you'll see a lot of Twilight Pathways, too. Yeah. I actually don't think you're going to see Webway Dance all that much, because once you've been hit, maybe shaking off the wound a sixth of the time is not enough to save you. So uh, troops are your one troop. Oh, that's, that's troop with a UPE rather than an OOP. But, uh, and this is your only choice in Kill Team. Yep. I mean, they have a lot of the same options that the uh, Troop Master has, weapon-wise. So they're just... They're weaker individual troop users, but they have four attacks each and come in a unit size of five up to 12 total. So if a unit of these gets in combat with you, it's going to hurt really bad, especially if they have a troop master nearby and then letting them reroll wounds. But the big if is if they, if they can survive and get up to you. Because, again, they've got a four-up invulnerable save and three toughness. They don't have a lot going for them defensively. Um, getting into elites, you've got the Death Jester, which is their one heavy, heavy weapons dude. Although even his heavy weapon is still only an assault weapon. I so want to like him, but he, he is the one thing you probably won't see on the table. Now, he does have the ability to target characters even if they're not closest, which is handy. And if a unit fails the morale test during the morale phase, he he actually gets to pick the first model to be removed. So... He can actually, you know, cause a little bit of targeted disruption in a unit. Also, he can make people explode with his gun. Because each time... It, so he, his his Shrieker cannon, 24-inch uh, Assault 1 is one of its two firing modes. He's also got an Assault 3 firing mode that's just a Shuriken cannon. And both of these have the ability, like, if you roll 6 to wound, it's AP minus 3, which is really handy. 
But uh, the Shrieker version, every time you kill an infantry model with it, uh, the unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. And if any models are slain, that unit takes minus two leadership as well. So there's stuff in this army to mess with the leadership of other of other units. But being able to pick out units and do extra mortal wounds is is useful. It's almost like having a second Psyker who's just doing smites on people. It's useful, and but it's only one shot to cause that effect to happen. That is true. And so if he happens to miss, which he shouldn't, then if they make their save, which they probably will, since even though it's strength six, you're probably going to wound them, but their save is what's going to matter. Yeah, it's AP minus one unless you roll a six to wound. Right. And point-wise, he's he's 45 points. He's a cheap add-in. Right. Well, he's gone down. Uh, he was 75 in the index. He was 60 in chapter approved. And now he's down to 45. Which t- yeah, shows no one's using him. And even at 45, he's still not a good... Right. If he was 30, oh, I might toss him in there to fill points but we'll, we'll see if he goes down some more 45 is the the sweet spot to get people to finally put him on the table yeah i i don't know if they could drop him much lower without him almost becoming less expensive than what his gun would be <laughs> <laughs> but then you've got the other elite they have the solitaire so good the solitaire well the solitaire has always been a good choice solitaire comes in at 84 points and i think punches way above his his weight weight class on that He's got a 12-inch movement built, you know, just from the get-go. Two-up weapon skill, two-up ballistic skill, strength three, toughness three, five five wounds, a three-up invulnerable save due to having an impossible form, and eight attacks base. Eight attacks. <laughs> eight attacks base. He has no guns. He is armed purely with a Harlequin's Kiss and a Harlequin's Caress. So, again, if you're going after infantry, like, massed infantry, go for the Caress. If you're going after single unit, use the Kiss. And then once he's got the rising crescendo and flip built, just like all other Harlequins, but his big thing is the blitz. Once per battle, instead of making the normal move, you can blitz, which gets him 2d6 additional movement. So 12 plus 2d6. And in addition, its attacks characteristic is increased to 10. So it goes from 8 attacks to 10 attacks until the end of the turn. However, you can't combo it with Twilight Pathways. You cannot slingshot him around that far. <laughs> that would because then he could move potentially move nearly forty eight inches. But I have seen people Twilight Pathways him on turn one and then turn two blitz into something else. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, again, this is this is the perfect example of the glass blunder. Yeah, he can be killed pretty easily. Although the three up invuln definitely helps here. I, I will say he is one of my worst characters to use because twice he's died in Overwatch. Yeah. Don't <laughs> charge flamers with this army. It will not end well. I mean, not saying it that that's what happened. It wasn't flamers. It was fire warriors. Uh, yeah, I remember. Well, I remember. I mean, but, that's not a statistically better odds either. So Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, this, this is an army that, like, Overwatch has the potential to chew this army up. So you have to be very, very careful with it. And it's definitely one that you want to layer your charges. Oh, yes. Uh, then we get into their fast attack choice, which is the Skyweaver bike, which is actually a unit of two. I love Skyweavers. I think we, they're awesome. We've talked about them numerous times. They are expensive. The prices have gone down even in this edition, but all the prices have gone down. Right. But they're worth what you pay for them. Yeah, because they are... 
the way we would usually take them is 30 points plus 10 for the Shuriken Cannon. So 40 points plus 6 for Zephyr Glaive, because that's the only weapon you should ever take on this. Oh, the Star Bolas are not as bad now, but I... Agree. They're not as bad, but but I'd rather have a, a decent melee weapon, and the Zephyr Glaive is really good. And the Star Weavers used to be 79 with the Zephyr Glaive at 11. For the Sky Weavers? Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. 35 and 11 plus the Jerkin Cannon for 10 more. So 21 and 35. So it's 56. Yep. They are 46 now. So a 10 point drop. And that makes a big difference because it'll let you put more things in. Right. And Skyweavers, it's two per unit, 16 inches of movement. They automatically advance six inches when you advance them. Uh, they're minus one to be hit because they have Mirage Launchers and uh, the Zephyr Gla- you take the Zephyr Glaive on them. It's a plus one strength, so that gets them to strength four. They're also tough four because they're on bikes. They've got three wounds each, but that Zephyr Glaive's plus one strength, minus two AP, two damage per hit. And the fact that they're charging you, then falling back and charging something else. Well, and the other thing is they have the advance and charge rule, so it's technically going 16 plus 6, so 22 inches of movement and then charging. Yeah. No, it's it's very nasty. They also have the option to take take haywire cannons, which are their anti-vehicle guns, which has the same range as a shuriken cannon, has more shots, and is actually not terrible against lighter infantry. Strength 4, AP minus 1. One damage and does mortal wounds to vehicles on a four up, D3 mortal wounds to a vehicle on a six up. So the, these are solid additions to your army. You want to have at least a couple of units of these, I would say. And, and definitely take the Zephyr Glaives and then weapon underneath the thing to taste because both of them are good. I mean, Haywire Cannons are actually better than they used to be because they used to be heavy D3. Now they're Assault D6. Yeah, which means you're also advancing and firing those at minus one to hit and then still charging in even after you advanced. You've got their heavy support choice, which is the Void Weaver, which used to be kind of weird because it had a back-facing gun. That's no longer an issue since everybody's 360-degree shooting. But the gun is still back-facing. The gun is still back-facing, but it uh, comes with two shuriken cannons and a haywire cannon. So the haywire cannon is just the same one that's on the the start. Or the Sky Weavers. I mean, my personal taste is I prefer the Prismatic Cannon that's yeah. on it. Yeah, the Prismatic Cannon basically gives you a tiny... Uh, fire fi- Prism. Yeah, tiny Fire Prism, which basically you've got three mo- methods of or three modes of fire. Dispersed, which is your anti-infantry. Your Focused, which is your anti-elite infantry. And your Lance, which is your anti-vehicle. And the bit differences are basically the number of shots goes down from D6 to D3 to 1. But then the strength, AP, and damage gets better as you as you lose shots. So like the lance is strength eight, AP minus four, D six damage, uh, whereas the like the dispersed is strength four, AP minus two, one damage. So it's a very flexible vehicle, and it's not a bad choice. I mean, it's the heaviest thing you've got in this army, and it's built in with the four up invone save, and it advances six automatically. It has the Mirage Launcher, so the opponent is minus one to hit it. And it's not a slouch in close combat either, with three attacks at weapon skill three up. Yeah. And, what, five strength? Yep. So it, it, it can hold its own in close combat. Yeah, So and six wounds. I mean, it's a light vehicle, but it'll, it'll get the, the job done. 
Uh, if you take the fancy guns off of, if you take the, the big gun off of it, it becomes a star weaver, and that's your one dedicated transport that can hold six infantry. And it's open top, so the people inside can shoot out of it with pistols, because that's pretty much all anyone's going to have in there. And the passengers can shoot if the vehicle falls back because of their rising crescendo rule. And otherwise, it's, I mean, it's basically this, it is basically a void weaver that has replaced its big gun with transport capability. And then finally, we have a piece of terrain, which is, we're again starting to see more of these terrain worked into codexes. This was the Webway Gate. Dennis is so liked, thought it was so nice, he bought it twice. <laughs> I, I do really like the concept of this, and I'm pleased that they put this in a book. And it, it's in an Eldar book. I kind of wish that it... Because it, it says Eldari. It is not like Harlequin only. It's not Drukari only. It's all of the Eldar. And being in this book, it almost feels like you have to have this book to have it. Even though once you buy the Webway Gate box... It has the same rules in the thing for it, but this is the first time it's actually in a codex itself. So I'm pleased. I'm thrilled. I love seeing Eldar actually train because I've been asking for Eldar train for a while. So I am pleased with that. I just I just don't know if this was the best spot to put it in, but this is probably the most one that makes the most sense right right so, now. Yeah, and it's actually pretty cool. It lets you you know you set it up anywhere more than twelve inches from the their deployment zone or any enemy models more than three inches away from any objective, any other train features or objective markers. You can't just camp it on top of an objective marker because it is one of the models in your army, which also means that it is a model in your army for the purposes of nine inches of deep strike. Yeah. That that was something that came up in our, our game that we played of this is part of my army. So you can't automatically just deep strike here, which means this is extra board control that you have on your half of the board. Right. I mean, downside is if you put it in the 12 inches of no man's land, you can't bring anything out of it until turn two. So that's kind of a, I don't say a problem. And you can also only bring one unit out of it each turn. Right. So it definitely has limitations. So basically the way this works is when you deploy it, you pick one of your, any, you pick your units or you pick, you can pick any number of units that you haven't deployed yet to basically go into reserves. And then they can come out of each, each webway gate can put out one unit per turn that just gets set up within three inches of the webway gate and nine inches away from any enemy models. So. Which also means that if you have one set up and the opponent walks over to there or sends a vehicle over there and just parks it there, you're going to have a hard time getting people out. Right. But it does, it, because it is board control, it does stop people from deep striking near it because it is a, you know, it's basically got a huge nine inch bubble around it. Oh, it really, it really does. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's going to be tough to get rid of at eight toughness, 14 wounds, a three up armor save, five up invulnerable save. So it, it's kind of hardy, but it has no movement, so it won't move. No weapon skill, no ballistic skill, no guns or weapons whatsoever so it just sits there yeah <laughs> but it's also if i remember right not all that expensive 120 points okay that's actually more than i thought it was it's not nearly as cheap as like the sacristan oh no it, it's not cheap board. and and i i complained that i thought 120 was too expensive just for the amount of board control it gives you that's though? why i'm okay with it now yeah because if it was just a delivery method i'm like man that's way too many points for a delivery method but I think it's the board control which makes up for that. 
Right. Uh, where, you know, and it's the trade off of you can put as much stuff as you want in the Webway gate, you know, within, you know, restrictions on match play and such. You don't play any, don't pay any command points for that. But if you lose all your Webway gates, those units are lost and never. Or if someone has their stuff sitting there and they can't come in until what, what, after turn three? They're dead. Right. Yeah. So you, at most, you could probably, if you, I would not put any more than three units per webway gate and probably only one or two i would put two preferably one but yeah i mean the thing it gives you is an extra spot of bringing people in later which i would also kind of recommend even though it's super expensive point wise two webway gates because then you actually have options of which webway gate you're coming out of right and again it's just more board control to keep deep strikers away as well um, we'll talk real quick about the mask forms, a.k.a. Harlequin chapter traits. Uh, so you've got Midnight Sorrow. Uh, units from this form can move an additional... So these are the, yeah, the mask forms. So units with this form can move an additional D6 when they fall back. In addition, units with this form consolidate up to 6 inches. So again, you know, just more movement in this army. More movement, more movement. Uh, veiled Path. At the start of each fight phase, roll two dice, discard the highest result. Uh, this is the one where your opponent, if they roll that number, that's an automatic miss. So they're harder to hit just because one-sixth of your opponent's swings are just going to miss. Frozen Stars. If a unit with this form charges in the charge phase, add one to their attacks characteristic. Not bad. I mean, they already have a ton of attacks. So. Yeah, so your, your four attacks each goes to five attacks each? Yeah. <laughs> Soaring Spite. Uh, models with this form that can fly or that are embarked upon a transport that can fly. Treat all pistol weapons they're equipped with as Assault 1 weapons during a turn in which they or the transport they're embarking on advanced. In addition, these models do not suffer the penalty for uh, shooting Assault weapons in a turn in which they advanced. That's actually really big. The uh, Dark Eldar had a similar rule on one of the uh, witch cults, I believe. For- I think so. I'd have to look it up. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, since the majority of your weapons are going to be pistol weapons, yeah, and you can't normally shoot with them if you advance, you just turn them to assault, and without a penalty for advancing, you get lots of shots out of your, your vehicles then. Yep. Uh, Draining Shadow, when the unit with this form fails a morale test, only one model from this unit must flee. In addition, each time a model with this form is slain or flees, roll a d6 before removing that model on a 4-up. That model can either shoot with one of its ranged weapons or the shooting phase or make a single attack as if it were the fight phase. So it's the best part of the Commissar, the old Commissar rule, plus you get to try to do something when you die. Or or, when you die or when you run away. So that one's... I think potentially pretty handy. And finally, Silent Shroud. Uh, subtract one of the leadership characteristics of enemy units while they're within six inches of any units from your army with this form, which they're going to be if you're going to be assaulting them. In addition, when your opponent takes a morale test for a unit that's within six inches of any units from your army with this form, they roll two dice and discard the lowest, so they always get the highest result on their morale tests. I mean, that's probably one of the weaker ones, but it's also one of the ones I really like because I like the idea of the Harlequins playing with the leadership ability. Yeah. And they've got, a, you know, like one or two units that play off of that, but not not nearly as many as some armies. Although this could combo really well with like a Dark, dark Eldar army that does like with like Torment Grenade Launchers and the True, or uh, I take a Flyer Wing and have um, Hemlock 
Wraith fighters. Oh yeah. So mm-hmm. sprinkle the whole board with minus two leadership, and then have some shadow seers go to town with mortal wounds. Yeah. So there's definitely tricks you can pull off with this, and if you kind of think about this as part of a larger Eldar army, because this is still a very. I mean, you could play a full Harlequin army. That's totally option an option you can have. But there's a lot. You know, like bring in like like you said, Eldar flyers, something that they just do not have access to, is a way to kind of really fill out that capability and get and get some of that synergy going. We're not going to talk all about uh, the stratagems because there's still three pages and it's getting late. I uh, did want to talk about a couple of them. Great Harlequin, which is a neat concept, but it's expensive uh, command point wise because it's two command points to gain the ability to uh, reroll hit rolls of one for friendly mask units within six inches of one troop master in your army. In the fight phase. In the fight phase. Not mm-hmm. not reroll one. If it's just reroll ones to hit, okay, it's maybe. If it was reroll all hits, which would make sense because it's the Great Harlequin is more like a chapter master type thing, mm-hmm. that would make sense. But reroll ones in the fight phase is... One command point, I would say, okay. Two, no. Yeah, no. This, it, it's it's not enough for what you for what you get out of it. See, prismatic blur gives a unit a three up and vulnerable save. Again, anything that can make a unit a little bit more survivable. So that and your shadow seers using abilities, you're going to have. You're going to layer your assaults, and you're going to have those key units you want to get into assault, and this helps that happen. I still like hero's path. It would be the one thing I would use a death jester for. Two <laughs> command points to have the death jester, solitaire, and shadow seer when they're set up together. You could then redeploy them or take them off the board and put them within nine inches or outside of nine inches of any enemy model. But hey, your psychics will be close. The um, solitaire can easily um, move assault to places and death jester. Well, he's there. Yeah, because this is at the start of a movement phase, so you haven't. Although it is a redeploy, so technically they don't get any further movement. Well, yeah, you you take them off of the start of the movement, and they get placed at the end of the movement phase. Okay, yeah. But uh, I think a solitaire can make a nine-inch charge. Right. <laughs> they have access to a couple of things, like Fire and Fade is a very, you know, is, is standard Eldar. Eldar stuff, yeah. Um, they've got a webway assault, so if you don't take the webway gate, you can still spend command points to get a couple of units popping out of a, you know, popping into deep strike somewhere, which it, it won't get the transports, but infantry or bikers. So I could see, you know, deep striking either the bikers in somewhere and trying to get an assault with them or just putting them near a vehicle to get, uh, you know, pop them in near a vehicle to get haywire cannon hits. I do miss when haywire grenades were a lot better. I don't like haywire grenades as a stratagem, just like I don't like EMP grenades for Tau as a stratagem to spend one command point to try to hit with a grenade once to maybe do D3 mortal wounds. Yeah. It's a lot of if coming off that plan. There is a lot of if. And that was the thing. Har- like, Haywire grenades, that was, like, was one of the reasons you took Harlequins in the past. Is you, they could, you could all have hay- Haywire grenades and vehicles would just die around them. And that's not <laughs> the case anymore. But any unit that depended on like anti-vehicle grenades can't really do that anymore. And I guess the, the ones that I'll call out are there are stratagems that actually affect the webway gate. Which, that, I think that's why I, I was thinking the Webway Gate's here, but it's all Eldari, but the stratagems that are tied to the Webway Gate are only Harlequins right now. Right. So, I kind of wish those stratagems were 
for our, all Eldari, or maybe they got eroded or had a different section saying add these to your Eldari. But right now, if you want access to those extra stratagems, you have to have a Harlequin detachment. Right. Although that could be as simple as a troop master and a troop. Also true. Yeah, because uh, like one I would definitely see taking would be the Labyrinth Laughs. If you're using a Webway Gate, you want this because if your Webway Gate gets destroyed, you're still able to pull one of the units that was in it out and deploy it. So that's really handy to have. I think we'll mostly skip Warlord traits. I miss the days when they had like three charts that had like very unique Warlord traits. <laughs> the, it, true, but they did put the Path of Light, Dark, and Twilight as three of the different Warlord traits. Yeah, so it, it's still that that history is just is still kind of built in. And I mean, one of them was to in the past was to kind of play with the game ending thing, and so I don't think they wanted that anymore. Right. The, these are much more fitting. So yeah, anything from rerolling all hit wound and damage rolls of one to having a three-up and vulnerable against melee weapons, which, again, won't help you get to the melee. It'll just help you survive the melee. But yeah, stuff like that. All, all the factions have their own specific warlord traits. So, I really, on those, I mean, it, it's flavor to taste. Although the Path of Twilight's the one that gives you command points back on a rolls of... that matches your opponent's stratagem cost. So Yeah, you'll see that a lot, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, so that yeah, that's probably going to be your, your strongest one. Which means, hey, if somebody from the Black Heart Cabal cancels one of your stratagems and then you roll a three, you get the you get three command points back. So that's nice. And uh, not counting the faction specific relics. Let's see, Mask of Secrets is still good for Shadow Seer if you're trying to lower people's leadership, right? Because it increases their leadership by one and lowers the leadership by one if of any enemies units within six inches of you. You've got a couple of, you know, a couple of weapon swaps. Um, the Star Mist Raiment is one I actually do like. Uh, because I think this one's a must-have. Uh, three up and vulnerable save against ranged weapons. In addition, they can't overwatch you in a, in a turn in which you advanced, which you should always be advancing in this. And that's one thing I would be tempted to just put on a solitaire. Right, and that's one thing is there are no named characters in this, so there's no characters that are restricted from taking relics. So that on a solitaire to make sure that he survive that he can't be overwatched. It doesn't help his invulnerable save, but it's and still a really good choice. It's probably the best choice in the the list. I mean, I was always a fan of the storied sword before because it makes your power sword D three damage. But if I have to spend command points for it, I'm not going to have that many. I'll just probably stick with the Stardust Tournament. Right. Like I said, kind of skipping the the faction specific ones. Yeah, Storied Sword and Star Mist Raiment are probably the best ones. Mask of Secrets is conditional. Suit of Hidden Knives is weird because it depends on your opponent rolling one, rolling ones to hit you, and then you rolling a, a a roll and not rolling a one to do a mortal wound to them. See, and I and I read that and I'm like, God, that would just cut through me. Well, that's because you always roll ones. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not bad, but I think Star Mist Raiment is still better. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. You're going to take that. That's the one you take. And then if you spend the extra points, you're going to probably go for the sword or, you know, maybe. The faction ones are actually pretty good, yeah. too. I mean, but all the faction ones are definitely flavor to taste because there's one that makes an aura bigger. There's one that <laughs> lets you move, have a transport move farther and it you don't die if it blows up. So, I mean, there's lots of really good ones, and they actually kind of go with the mask traits that were already in the unit. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that pretty much covers Harlequins. Um, it is a very fragile elite. You know, it's it's like you look at when we we think of elite armies like Custodes or Death Watch or Grey Knights, Knights. You think a very res- you know small model count, but very resilient. They can take a beating because they have to be able to. But they've got a ton of like a, you know a ton of damage capacity and ability to to make up for it. Eldar small elite army is please don't hit me because if you hit me I will die. But if I hit you, you will die. But it's not an army that play like it's an assault army, but it doesn't play well as like hordes. I mean, you just don't have the numbers for it, right? But if you go with multiple small units, the transports are amazing because the enemy has to have minus one to their shots. And from we've seen with stealth suits and with anything like that, that makes a difference. Oh, absolutely. So it's one that you want the units to be in the transports as opposed to trying to take as big of a unit as you can and walk them across the table. Because, I mean, true, they can advance and charge, but uh, you, you want the safety of having a vehicle around. Right. Well, and they can still advance and charge out of the vehicle, too. True. So, I mean, that's just, extra, you know, it's protection that first turn and then, yeah, pop out and, you know, say hello to someone. And also use your jet bikes as a distraction or the first turn assault because they already have that minus one to hit against shooting built in. Right. So, yeah, I mean, MSU is probably the way to go on this. Use your transports, layer your assaults. Um, figure out which character, I mean, like, you really, you definitely want a Shadow Seer. I think oh, that, yeah. I mean, you need that for psychic defense and just the utility abilities that they bring to the table. Uh, one or two of those, one or two troop masters, and toss in the solitaire. Yeah. Death Jester, maybe. If you have the points, <laughs> no, no, it, seriously, if you have the points, I mean, at 45 points, there's probably a way to fit I mean, one I mean, in. I'll agree. When he was 70, I'm like, no. No, but he's <laughs> nearly half that now. So right. I think he's more cost-effective at that, at this new plot or a new price point. So, yeah. I, I there There's very little chaff in this army. True. I would say, I, I would say possibly the, the least interesting choice is the Void Weaver. I, I'll agree and I'll disagree. It probably is the least interesting, but it, with the prismatic cannon, that's your easy thing that can pop something big from afar. Yeah, afar being twenty four inches. That's yeah, not that's very the thing. Far. This is this is not a <laughs> this army cannot s- sit back and shoot. No, I mean, your longest range is twenty four inches. So yeah. you've got to get up in their faces. So you've got to figure out the best way to do that. But I think there's it's got a lot of it's an army with a lot of neat tricks with the different you know mask forms it's customizable to to get what you want out of it and it's like as far as the particular flavor of harlequin but i would also definitely look at this as something that you ally in with or you ally something in with this to pad it out again it's like i could definitely see like if i was going to use harlequins competitively and then taking like a patrol detachment or a cheap like Vanguard or Outrider detachment or something of Dark Eldar just to get access to like the Black the Cabal of the Black Heart. Although it's going to be a lot of command points and you're not going to have a ton because you can't build a lot of detachments out of Harlequins. Right. I mean, other thing if you wanted to flavor to taste, um, get a Outrider detachment that has a bunch of shining spears. 
Or a flyer, like you said, flyer wing of Hemlock Wraith Fighters would, yeah. would do very well. Yeah, just, you know, don't, this is an army that can stand on its own, but definitely look at what you can combine it with to, to maximize that, you know, the synergy of it. And, uh, like I said, be prepared to paint lots of tiny diamonds or have fun with doing, like, alternating color schemes. Because yeah, th- this is definitely the most colorful. Oh, easily, easily. Army out there. So make it colorful, bright, and I don't want to say happy because they have the grinning masks, but there's a they're lot of sadness happy. behind it. I was going to say, there's not, they're not happy masks. All right. And speaking of painting, we'll move on to a quick bit of hobby progress before we wrap up the show. Um, I have been working on stuff for Show Me Showdown. I, uh, last, or yesterday I finished up doing decals on my second Riptide and my Yvara. I'm going to try to get them sealed this week. And I even, I may have to seal them twice because I'm picked up some, uh, secret weapon weathering powders, like the, the dry pigment stuff and, uh, some pigment fixative. So I'm going to try to weather them a little bit. We'll see how it goes. Hopefully I don't screw them up too badly. <laughs> I, that's actually, I'm going to seal them before I put on the pigment. I talked to our friend Alex Hunt and he was like, yeah, you want to, you know, cause he like, he's always a big fan of use sealant as basically your save state. <laughs> so that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, he's like, seal it before you put this pigment on. And also, uh, Phil at tabletop game and hobby, which is where, uh, I picked it up from. He's like, have you ever used this stuff before? And I'm like, no, he's like, well, first off, you want to get the, the pigment fixative. He's like, also this stuff gets everywhere. So like you know, <laughs> have a paper towel down to work, have Ziploc bags. So, like after you close it up, put it in the Ziploc bag. So if it gets knocked open again, it'll be inside the bag. And he's like, I spilled a bottle. I sp-, and they're like little f- flat jars, like half the size of like a GW paint pot. But he's like, I spilled one of these like six months ago. I'm still finding pieces, you know, bits of pigment. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's going to be, I'm, I'm a little intimidated, but I'm willing to give it a try and see how it goes. And then once I'm done with this bit of painting, then I'm just going to be... Oh, and I built the terrain for from my kill team. But once I'm done with this, I'm going to take like a day or two to breathe, and then I've got it... I'm just going to be building models like crazy, because I have Blood Angels to build, and I have Daughters of Cain to build, and I've got so many things to build. <laughs> yeah, we need to figure out what we're going to do for the Renegade Open team tournament, too. Yes, yes, we do. Uh, so the big thing that I did is I played in a tournament last last time we recorded, like the next day, and uh, I got completely pantsed. So we played using the ITC uh, scoring system, and I was listening to um, the Exterminatus podcast, and they talk about how the average score when you're using like the ITC champions missions, like for a winner, it's like 25. For the loser, it's like 16 points. So I played three games, lost all three, got hammered in all three. So I should have approximately 36 points. I finished the tournament dead last with 28 points in three games. A score of the the 28 points that I scored would not have won any of the three individual games if I'd scored 28 points in them. The next lowest points was 41. (laughs) I took a mixture of Custodes, a Knight, and some Death Watch, and... Yeah, it just did not did not work the way I expected it to. Um, I, I laugh because Kevin, I was thinking at one time of going to a casual with some custodes, death watch, and a knight. So now you well, tried it out for me. That, thanks. So I had the knight valiant, 
because that was one that I the original idea was to run the Night Valiant with Micah Stodes and basically use it as a uh, distraction car in effects, essentially, so that my bikes could get up there. But I realized I didn't have enough custode bikes put together to do the list I wanted to. So I was like, oh, I'll add Death Watch. That'll be some good shooting. And the problem is, is that this was two weeks after the Night Codex came out and bolters don't do shit against knights. They, they really don't. They really don't. But it was still a good event. The opponents I played were uh, uh, Jacob in the first round with uh, his Imperial Knight list. He's actually just started a podcast called uh, Back to the Warp that I told him I'd give a shout out on the podcast uh, to go give it a listen. And then I faced uh, Josh, who was actually like the ringer, like running the event. And uh, it was a fun game. You know, I had a good time with them. Lost as well against Blood Angels. And then uh, the final list, it was against uh, Tyranids. And Death Watch did really good at taking out the small griblies, but the distraction Carnifexes uh, weren't a distraction and ate everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was, it was they were fun games, so it was good to get out and play. Those, those are the games that I ran the chess clock, I, and it was a little bit weird getting used to the chess clock, but because the games were such blowouts, it never really felt like it impacted it too much. So I... I, I don't mind using the chess clock. I just don't like the, the what it le- you know how how it the type of play it encourages. I guess that's basically all I've done was was play a few games and get my butt kicked. <laughs> well, for me, I finally have my Bone Singers primed, and this week I will get them and my Shadows here painted so I can be weird and take a Knight Army to Show Me Showdown. Even though this is going to be a Wraith Knight Army, <laughs> and we'll Whoa. see how it does. Nice. Uh, I continued painting on some Grey Knights, uh, slowly plugging away at those, and then I made a painted a test model for my Night Haunts, and got to use some of the Hex uh, Wraith Flame, one of their new technical paints. That is a very intense green. Yes, <laughs> and I'm I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. That oh, looks good. So. I'm expecting it to glow in the dark. One would think, but I don't think it does. No, it doesn't. It'd be funny if it did. It would be awesome if it did, but I don't think it does. <laughs> Although I've got a bottle of it, I should... Nah, I'm not going to... Ch- I'm probably going to check it out, but... <laughs> I I actually have a spray can of just, like, white glow-in-the-dark spray okay. paint. <laughs> and that's... And, like, I mean, that's the way you use these technical paints is you paint something white and then you like kind of glaze this over so you think it would still glow in the dark uh, if you I, did that i'm wondering if, uh, if that might work you i might want like to thin idea. it down a little bit just so i mean possibly yeah. just so you can make sure enough photons get to the white to to glow but yeah no but that would well and this is actually like this specific one i put like two layers of of it i would say it looks a little bit heavier than there but no it looks good it's it, it's neat the technical paints they're coming out with and it's it's like they did that and they've got a blue that goes like yeah. companion blue and then those are like companions to Nihilac Oxide which has kind of the same finish but in that like light patina blue so mm-hmm. alright well it is after midnight so that means it wraps up we are done here for the night at Preferred Enemies uh, so next week we'll probably have some show me showdown coverage and We'll see what other news comes out about, like, Titanicus and stuff like that. We'll figure out what we're talking about. It's late. My brain isn't working. So, <laughs> <laughs> so from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm Rob. 
Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and go play some Kill Team, and or you know, go order some Kill Team, and uh, maybe play around some of the evil clowns. Well, not evil clowns. Good Happy cl- clowns. Happy clowns. Killer clowns. There we go. Go play From some outer more. space. From outer space. Good night. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Like 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.